today, not tonight. This we Mark Coleman is has practiced Buddhist meditation since 1984. He is on the Spirit Rock Teachers Council and has been teaching insight meditation since 1997. He also leads wilderness meditation retreats from Alaska to Peru. He is a psychotherapist, life coach, mindfulness consultant corporation. He is also an avid outdoor enthusiast and passionate about combining the forces of meditation, silence, and nature. We have Mark's books for sale. We also have an email list sign up for, for you to sign up if you'd like, and some uh, cards and flyers out there also. So here's Mark. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to this day on your favorite inner demon the inner critic the judging mind I know you're all here because you know somebody who has one rather than for yourself but it's very kind of you to show up and be that compassionate for others but you might learn some one or two things for yourself maybe you know we'll see um, it's funny I always joke that this is my most well attended seminar of the year for a reason because right? this is a popular topic right? we all have varying degrees uh, a mind that is critical and judgmental and that critical mind can be used really well and effectively and it can also be used and turned inward in a way that's very painful and destructive and undermining and uh, is a tremendous source of suffering so I started teaching about this theme actually originally um, on uh, so I've been teaching loving kindness retreats meta retreats for about 15 years uh, mostly on the east coast with Sharon Salzberg and it was just became really evident that the people's capacity to love and feel self-compassion was really interrupted by the harshness and the severity and the frequency of the judging mind and so um, began giving talks and lectures on that theme as a support for people to um, find some way to work with it. So it's not, it wasn't so such an obstacle. And, um, and then decided to write a book about the theme some years ago. Um, it wasn't what I wanted to write about. I had another thing I wanted to write about, but it just <laughs> kept kind of knocking on the door like a thought meme. And... Um, I woke up one night and the whole table of contents came and it's like, okay, I'm supposed to write this book. So I wrote this book. It came out very easily. It was kind of fun to write. And then teaching more workshops about the theme. Um, I, I was really clear I didn't want to become an inner critic specialist. <laughs> I didn't want my life to be teaching just about that theme. Um, so I don't teach so much about it. I teach one or two workshops here and sometimes I teach at Esalen. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I, I, I'm very committed to continuing teaching about this because it's such a you know, ubiquitous uh, phenomena and um, you know, really is worthy of our attention as human beings, as meditators, as Dharma practitioners. And, and especially for those of you who are clinicians in the room or working with people, it's also really... Uh, useful to have this you know, uh, and ways, tools and ways of understanding to work with it. 
So I don't have an inner critic. I've just heard about it. Um, so I have no, you know, no personal experience about the matter. Uh, just kidding. Um, I, you know, when I first started my Buddhist practice when I was 19, um, I was just really crippled by my critic. Very harsh, judging mind, very painful, a lot of self-hatred. And um, I just thought that was normal. I just thought that's, that's, like, that's what having a mind is, is having a mind that's a bully and mean and, and undermining. Um, and it was only really through doing mindfulness practice that I got to see the pervasiveness of it and the, the, uh, the, the harshness of it um, and began to find ways to have a little space around it. Um, but it wasn't really until I uh, more fully developed the loving kindness, compassion practices that that really gave me more um, tools and space around around it to how to really hold hold the, it and the pain of it with 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 a kind heart. Um, and that takes work, but I think it's the I think love is the most effective antidote to something that hates. Even though it's maybe trying to help us, it's a little misguided. Um, and so, that, hence the subtitle of my book. The, the, the title of the book is called Make Peace With Your Mind. And the subtitle is How Mindfulness and Compassion Can Help Free You From the Inner Critic. And so today we'll be using both those tools or sides of the spectrum. Uh, mindfulness and wisdom and uh, kindness and compassion. And they're both essential tools in life, but particularly with this uh, this uh, mental tendency. So we'll be doing different practices through the day. This day is is more workshoppy than meditative. We will be doing some meditations, but I, I think a bit more workshoppy. We'll be doing journaling, and we'll be doing uh, experiential exercise in pairs, um, and. Uh, and so hopefully you'll leave, well, you will leave with some tools that will hopefully serve you in, in working with your own mind and uh, this, this habit. So there might not be new tools. You know, some, most of what I teach and we teach is really just reminding you what you know and you just forget. But there's also some, way, some specific techniques that I think you'll find helpful. How many people have read the book out of interest? The Make Peace With Your Mind. Okay, it's a really popular book. I see one hand going up. <laughs> Sales are really robust. <laughs> mm. I got a fan over there. Thank you. Great. <laughs> well, if you like the day, I highly recommend the book. It's very practical. Most of my books are very practical. They're very hands-on. There's a, it, basically a lot of the, the work that I'm teaching today comes out of that book. So um, uh, give yourself a Christmas present, early Christmas present. So I'm curious why you're here. So to just do that, expeditiously, just turn to the person next to you. Maybe you've come with someone, maybe you haven't. Um, introduce yourself and just take like a minute each. What brings you here? What, what, what was it about the theme or the timing that uh, lured you to this um, day long on the inner critic? You could be at the beach. Well, you wouldn't be at the beach today. You could be at the movies. But no, you were at a workshop on the inner critic. What, what, what was it that called you? What are you hoping to learn or understand? 
So just turn to someone next to you, behind you, it might be a group of three, that's also fine. And if you if you're alone, just, just join a group of two. Just or if you just if or someone who's coming in, we're just pairing up and talking about what brings us to the workshop today. Just join a group of two, just talking about what we're doing here today. What brings you here? Anybody like to say what, what brings you here today? What, um, what calls you? Just shout it out, a word or two. And if it's a long, we can get a microphone. But just, just what's in the room? What brings you today? I'm exhausted of it. You're exhausted of it, of the critic. Okay, yeah. Anybody exhausted of the critic? Yeah, it's exhausting. Yes, what else? Please. It, it impacts how I interact with others sometimes, defensiveness. Right. It impacts how you interact with others, get defensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes? I want to like, enjoy where I am now more than feeling like where I'm at is never enough. Right. I want to enjoy where I am because where you are now, it, from the critic's perspective, is never enough. Yeah. yeah. It keeps you small. keeps you small. Yes. It keeps our light hidden. Yes. 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 That's because you didn't get the book. <laughs> That's a follow-up. <laughs> Thank you for that. Right, this, this is long-term work, right? I've been looking at my critic for some decades, and, you know, it still has a voice. I don't care much about it. don't listen to it so much. But, yeah, this is not a one-time fix. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, please. Right, so able to show compassion for others but not for ourselves, yeah, because the critic is getting in the way. Yeah, yes. I want to grow 
Uh, I want to grow up and leave my father's voice. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah, I feel the pain of that. Yeah. It can be paralyzing. Yes, it can be paralyzing. Yeah. 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 I'm already feeling the tenderness in my own heart and maybe the tenderness in the room, right? This is a, this is a tender subject, right? There's a lot of pain comes with this and it's and it's the, it's the kind of pain that's very frequent, right? We visit this pain many times in the day, right? We feel small, we feel belittled, we feel not enough, we feel judged, we feel shamed, we feel deficient, right? This is, this is you know, I, I think of it as the, the primary source of self-created suffering. Right? There's many sources of suffering in the world, global, personal, relational, it's health, etc. But of the, of the pain that we create for ourselves, I think of this as the number one suffering because it's so pervasive, and it can it can it can pervade all day with you know whether you're working or parenting or con- or conversing or driving or playing music or whatever it is it's there it's sitting on your shoulder Mm-mm, not enough not good enough could be better not as good as yesterday or so and so so um We'll meditate in a minute, but I'm just curious to hear, what are your names for the critic? What do you call this voice inside your head? Right? I call it the critic, but I've got a lot of other names. What are your names? The disease. That's interesting. I haven't heard that one. That's a good one. The disease. What else? The judge. Yes, the judge. Polyperfect. Polyperfect. That's a good one. Polyperfect. Uh-huh. What else? The roommate. Right. The unpleasant roommate. <laughs> yes. I, someone said that. Someone said on a retreat once, it's like a, having a bad college roommate. <laughs> and then someone later said, no, it's more like having a whole college dorm in there. Because, right, there's a lot of different voices, right? Different, you know. Someone said something over here about bashing. The basher. The basher. The basher. The basher. <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid. Yeah, God, I'm getting some good original ones today. What else? The lizard brain, right? Yes, primitive, right? Not so sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. Helicopter self. What does say more about that helicopter self? Ah, uh, right, hovering. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's good to hear these different words because they all point to different facets, right? It's not just one monolithic thing. It's a whole variety of things, right? So um, other words I have, the bully, the taskmaster. Um, someone called it the itsy-bitsy shitty committee because <laughs> it is kind of a committee, right? Um, it's a boardroom, Right? There's the CFO criticizing your finances and there's a CEO criticizing your organization and then there's the board chair who's criticizing your direction in life and there's the, you know, on it goes. Um, the guilt tripper, the underminer, the destroyer, someone said. It's a little intense. Um, 
And then, of course, lastly and most quintessentially, the perfectionist. The perfectionist, thinking we should be perfect. Thinking we should have already figured it out. We should already have it together. Already know what we're doing and where we're going and who to be with and what to invest in. And right, It's, it's never... You know. yeah. So notice how you're feeling right now. This, as, we, as we just start to surface the names... The, the reasons for being here and maybe feeling some of its impact right? this is just can feel heavy can feel like you know or annoying or it can feel burdensome or just painful right? I can see some there's a lot of tears that people are already here just feeling that the pain of it so it's important that we hold whatever happens today with kindness, with compassion. Because this is hard. This is, as the Buddha said, the, the first truth in life is life is hard. Life is, life is unsatisfactory. It's painful. Right? And this is a classic example of one way life is hard. We have this mind and this voice that causes us ongoing suffering. We didn't ask for it, we didn't choose it, we don't want it, we don't like it, and here it is, right? That's, that's dukkha, that's unsatisfactoriness, that we, one of the things we live with right, as human beings. Not all of us, most people, not, not everybody. Some worse than others. So, so I'm really glad that you're here, because the good news about doing this work is despite contrary to popular opinion over there, it does make a difference, right? You know, we can, we can really make radical shifts in relationship to this painful pattern. It might not go away. It might not disappear. We don't have a zapper, you know, a critic zapper. Right? But what this practice does is teach us how to find freedom in relationship to experience. To find peace in relationship to experience. Peace in relationship to the fact that the fires are burning and the smoke is toxic and the air is hard to breathe. Peace in relationship to the torments of our mind. Ease in relationship to the suffering of the body. We We can develop tools of awareness, compassion, etc., that genuinely f- help us find a sense of space, space, ease, compassion, equanimity, etc. Uh, that help certainly take some of the sting out, certainly take some of the energy that feeds this voice, that propels it or reinforces it. And then through the practice of things like loving kindness, of compassion, we can learn how to hold ourselves with kindness and forgiveness rather than judgment and shaming and belittling. So that's the possibility, right? It doesn't happen overnight. 
It takes practice, it takes work, it takes intention, it takes effort. Um, it takes coming together in days like this to do that kind of work. But I want to, you know, offer that there is some ways to work with this. There's some good news around this. And I've seen that for myself. I've seen that with many students I've worked with. And, um, you know, it's possible for all of us. You know, the Buddha said, if I didn't think to be free from suffering was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do this practice. But it works. Okay. So let's just sit for a little bit. Just cultivate some mindfulness, some awareness. So um, whatever you need to feel comfortable. So you could sit on the floor. There's cushions here in the front. There's more stuff in the cupboards there. Um, You want to be sitting in a way where you can feel comfortable, yet upright, so you feel wakeful, and at the same time feel relaxed and at ease. You might want to turn your phones off because if the phone goes in the middle of meditation, your critic will have a few things to say about it. (laughs) And some other people's critics might have a few things to say about it. (laughs) Won't be the first time. It might be mine that goes off. Who knows? I was once giving a Dharma talk on a retreat down in Yucca Valley in Southern California and big retreat, 150 people. I was a relatively new teacher and halfway through my Dharma talk, if someone's phone goes off and like, and this is like 10 years ago or eight years ago, so it's before many people had cell phones, like, so who's got a cell phone on? And Jack Cornfield reaches in his pocket and like, oh yeah. <laughs> okay, so finding a posture where you can sit with ease, Relaxation, uprightness. And closing your eyes, or if that's not comfortable, or you're feeling very sleepy, have the eyes lowered, but slightly open. And taking a few deeper breaths. We can take a few deep breaths in here, since the air is actually relatively clean with the kindness of these purifiers. And just taking some moments to arrive inside our own skin. Feeling the contact of your body with the ground, through your feet, your legs, the chair, your buttocks. And if possible, allowing the tension to soften. Soften your belly, your jaw, muscles around the eyes, shoulders.
and just being aware in a very general way of just your inner landscape. How does your body feel right now, this moment? Just welcoming whatever's here, however your body is, tired, relaxed, tense, open. Just welcoming. Mindfulness is a welcoming and a meeting with of what's here, with awareness, curiosity, and also sensing your heart. What, what's the emotional landscape in this moment? How do you feel open, safe, anxious, sad, happy? Can you just welcome whatever feeling or lack of feeling is here? And noticing your mind. And as we go through the day doing various practices, particularly noticing the presence or absence of the critic. Just notice if it's, if it's here right now. In some ways trying to improve your experience. Judging you for something that happened today. Or just a subtle sense of judgment or or not, whatever's here in the mind, calm, busy. Part of the practice is simply welcoming who we are, what's here. In this moment, the body is like this. My heart is like this. Mind is like this. Nothing to do but simply be present to your experience. Being aware of the space you're sitting in, the sounds, the silence. slowly attune to your breathing. Again, without needing to do anything different. Just notice, how am I breathing today, this moment, this morning? Maybe the breath is shallow, or tight, or deep, or relaxed. Letting your breath breathe itself. And simply feeling, sensing, oh, 
the changing sensations of the inhale, the exhale. Letting awareness settle, permeate, feel all those sensations. Expanding, contracting, pausing. It helps making a soft mental note of in on the inhale, out on the exhale. And of course you will notice many other things in this simple meditation. Sounds, other sensations, feelings, images, thoughts, memories, plans. No need to judge or condemn if our attention wanders from the moment. It does that all the time. Practice is simply to recognize, oh, attention's wandered. And it's an opportunity to begin again this moment, sitting and aware of sitting, breathing and aware of breathing. And we come back over and over, letting our attention attune and become curious about each inhale, each exhale, each pause.
matter how far the attention wanders, takes only a moment to return, to re-establish awareness. No need to judge. Simply beginning again over and over. In the last few minutes of the sitting, as the attention is wandered, again re-establishing a simple knowing, simple awareness of sitting, awareness of sitting, breathing, awareness of breathing. did at the beginning of the practice, begin to widen your field of attention so you include the 
whole experience of the body, all the sensations of sitting, temperature, tension, lightness, wherever your heart, again, what's present in your heart. of the mind and noticing as we bring the practice to a close if the critic has something to say about your meditation about your concentration or about things you could have, would have, should have done but haven't, didn't so we're just including that critical mind in a mindful awareness. And I'll close with a poem from Linda France called Dreaming the Real. I'm looking down, looking at the color of sky falling through trees, dreaming the real, tasting what it feels like to love it. Why did it take me so long to let go? Simply exhale so the day could breathe itself in and open without me standing in the way. How could I forget the grace of my own body, strong as this blue, tender as the white of the wild blossom, warm as the midday light. Let me practice a patience bold enough to hold every weather, trusting the elements, the beauty of rain, all of its shades of gray. I want whatever's real to be enough. At least it's a place to begin and to master the art of loving it and feel it love me back under my skin. end the meditation just open your eyes stretching whatever you need to do please take care of yourselves today whatever posture is useful supportive we will have a break in the middle of the morning but of course if you need to use the bathroom please free to do that So I'm going to um, talk a little more about the critic and understanding it. I'll give various talks through the day about different facets of this process. Um, not that I really need to talk about it because you're all probably experts in that um, unfortunately, there's a cartoon. There's a someone drawing, drawing the inner critic. It's called my inner critic, and the critic saying, "You drew me all wrong." <laughs> <laughs> and here's another one. I think it's a hare. Probably just finished the race with the tortoise or the turtle or whatever he's racing, and the the, the hare's thinking, "I should have done better."
So, the critic. So, in the context of Buddhist practice, the, which has been around for a few millennia, um, you can see the 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 critic in in the Buddha's life. And you might not think, well, the Buddha probably didn't have a critic, you know, he's enlightened, and but um, you know, in the in the story of his enlightenment, and and also throughout the text after his awakening, he has encounters with this figure that's sort of symbolized in this figure Mara, and. Many of you probably know this story. On the, on the night of his enlightenment, he's meditating. He's made this vow to not get up from his meditation cushion uh, until he attains full awakening. And he deals with all the, the inner demons, fear and desire and just all the things that we are usually afflicted with in, in meditation. And... Um, uh, and the, the this figure personified as Mara, which is the, the sort of force of unconsciousness or ignorance, comes to him to try and distract him from awakening. And this is this is Mara's last attempt. He's thrown all kinds of things, you know, to to distract the Buddha from awakening. And he, he pulls out his like his trump card. Oops, I shouldn't use that word. His um <laughs> his you know. <laughs> Fiesta la resistance card. <laughs> That's interesting. It's a little faux pas. Anyhow, um, <laughs> so many words out of the dictionary now. Um, and um, and the, 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 the Mara says to the Buddha, says, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to take this seat of enlightenment? Who do you think you are? By what right do you have to attain full awakening in the lineage of all the great Buddhas in, of the past? And the Buddha, wise enough not to get into a dialogue with this part of his mind, touches the earth. These, uh, yeah, like this, this mudra here, the Bhumispasha mudra, touching the earth. And the Buddha says, the earth is my witness. The earth is my witness. I have every right to take this seat of awakening. And I interpret, you can interpret that story in many ways. I interpret that touching the earth as saying, I have innate goodness just by being here on this earth. As a human being, I have every right to awaken. I don't need any validity or proof or anything else other than I exist. That I'm fine as I am and that as a human being gives me every right to awaken. Anybody have that voice? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to get this job or to give this lecture or to get this award or to, you know, whatever it is that you aspire to? And, and, the, and then this figure, Mara, appears to the Buddha many times throughout his life, even on his deathbed. So it doesn't go away, right? even with the Buddha. Right? It's an awakened being. And every time... Mara comes at some point the Buddha recognizes him and he says oh Mara I see you I see you 
And with that, when Mara's seen, he gets really disappointed and disgruntled and he kind of sort of gets all down and he whimpers off. Right? The, the clarity of awareness is enough to burst the bubble, the illusion that this voice actually has any credibility or reality. Right? That's the power of mindful awareness, the seeing, the, the clear seeing. Oh, that's the judge. That's the critic telling me I'm not enough, telling me I'm stupid, telling me I'm unlovable. Oh, thank you, Mara. That's very interesting. Go have a nice day. So, in that story, the key point really is the recognition. And one of the reasons I teach about the critic is because because we've lived with our own critic for so long, right? Many decades for many of us that we stop seeing it as a thing. We just think of it as just our thoughts. It's just our mind. It's just, it's just the wallpaper of our mind. And because we don't see it, then it lives in the living room. It takes up a lot of space and has influence because we're not recognizing it. And so we let it keep droning on because we're not giving it full recognition like the Buddha did, Amara, I see you. Get out of here. Didn't quite say that, but kind of implied that. And it's amazing, given how painful this pattern is, that we let it drone on. Right. Think about it. If say you spent the day with, you know, maybe some of you have come with friends and partners. Imagine that person that you came with, you know, good friend of yours. You decided to spend the day, and you said, you know what? I'm tired of my inner critic. You're going to be my inner critic instead. And you just tell me all the things that my critic tells me. Like you wake up in the morning, like, oh god, you look like shit. Uh, you're going to wear that, really? That's so unflattering. Your kitchen's a mess. You didn't do the dishes. You're such a slob. Imagine your friend walking around with you all day. Like, how long would you put up with that voice? Right? (laughs) You wouldn't get out of the bed. He's like, out of here. Like, I don't need this. Thank you very much. Not kind, not helpful. Right? Right? It's funny, but it's also true. But we let ourselves talk to ourselves like that. Right? You know, we, by the time you left the house to get here today, how many judgments had you had about, oh, I didn't meditate, oh, and I forgot to do something yesterday, and my house is a mess, and I haven't cleaned my car, and da, 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 you know. We let it drone on. This is a, a, another way of seeing it. This is a um, cartoon strip that I like, rhymes with orange. It's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic which is really the checklist of the critic. Critic. And there's a caption, the woman's comparing herself to uh, uh, someone who wants something. Choose yourself and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Examine your face, and she's looking in the mirror. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Especially if you go one of those 10x or 20x mirrors, right? Just a setup for the critic. Relive embarrassing moments, awful moments that occurred years ago. 
right? How much we do with that meditation? We sit and we drone on about all the things that we would regret and we did badly. And make a mental, this is a good one for the holidays, make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> and I add, especially the people who share your last name, who you'll be maybe spending Thanksgiving with, or you're not spending Thanksgiving with them. Disregard all compliments. So she's getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. Love you, And she's thinking, don't patronize me. And then lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. Right? So we're funny. Because we're funny because we do that stuff. Right? We live embarrassing moments. We compare ourselves unfavorably. We imagine all the people that are disapproving of us in our family or friends or bosses or whatever. Right? And then we feel anxious, we feel down, we feel deficient. And as you can see, I use a lot of humor when I teach this work, partly because it's really heavy, and partly because humor is in a similar way to mindfulness, is a way that we disengage. Right? If we can laugh at ourselves, or if we can laugh at the critic and laugh at the ridiculousness of it, it creates a little space. Right? As long as we're not laughing at ourselves, putting ourselves down, we're just laughing at, yeah, I do this, it's crazy, and I do it, and it's funny, and it's also very painful. Right? But there's, there's something about humor, and I'll talk about using humor as a strategy for dealing with the critic, that it does help create some space right? in the way that you go to see a stand-up comic and they laugh about you know, the banality of human existence and it's funny because we look at ourselves and, and we're quirky, we're wacky, we're eccentric. So I want to talk, so this point of the t- this talk is, is really just beginning to recognize the different ways the critic shows up. Um, and it, so again, it's really not that you don't already know this, but it's bringing into relief. Bring it's highlighting it, right? So the f- the primary, the first and foremost way is perfectionism. Right? How many people's critics are perfectionists? Right, most of them. Right, which is sort of bizarre because have you ever met a perfect person? Have you? Has anybody have a perfect life outside of Instagram and Facebook? Right, no. It doesn't, perfectionism, perfection doesn't, it's not what life is. Life is messy. Like, look at nature. It's beautiful and perfect, but it's wild and, and decaying and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's everything. Right? So to apply that to our human experience doesn't make sense. But, of course, the critic does that anyway. It holds us to a perfectionistic standard of whether it's meditating, whatever it is that you do. Not perfect enough. So the critic is basically implying it's not okay to be you. It's not okay to be human. It's not okay to do what you do in the way that you do. Which is a bit of a problem when it says you know it's not okay to be you. Because you are you. And if you've noticed, we don't change very much. <laughs> However many self-help books you read and self-improvement courses and meditation courses, we don't change that much. Really. I mean, you know, you know that because you've tried to change your partner. And how much have they changed? <laughs> Not a lot, right? We don't change much. Right? Basically, so this raw material, we, we can refine and develop and, you know, in different ways. 
but um, we are who we are. And, 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 and that's why mindfulness is such a useful antidote to the critic, because mindfulness is a radical accepting of who we are and how we are, right? You know, and we're also, you know, interrupting the ways that are, that are unhelpful and painful and whatnot. But we're basically, oh, this is how I am. However idiosyncratic, quirky, neurotic, that's, you know, we come in with this conditioning and, and influence from our culture and family and whatnot. So the critic likes to remind us that we're not doing it right. right? It feels like its job, to, to, it, it feels like it has a responsibility, and I'll say more about why it has this responsibility, to keep us safe. And its idea of keeping us safe is making sure we do things right, right? which is why it's like why the perfectionism is so strong. Right? So for example, in meditation, right, it's forever telling us that we're not doing it right. Did you notice that in meditation today? You're not, you're not meditating, you're not focusing enough, you're not mindful enough, you're not concentrated enough, you're not kind enough. Another way it shows up is it has 20-20 hindsight. Right? So our critic is merciless with what we did in the past. Right? Think about the ways that you judge yourself, you know, for some relationship that you got into or in, um, some investment that you made, some house that you moved into or bought, right? It's very easy to look back a year, five, ten years later and go, well, that was stupid, you know. I bought a house in 2007, right, just before the crash, right? I mean, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Everybody was, you know, houses were booming. It was, you know. And the critic's like, why did you do that? It was stupid. <laughs> and then I sold it. I short-sailed it, which messed up my credit till now. And, um, and I just looked at <laughs> a very bad mistake. I, looked, I went online yesterday and I thought, I wonder how much that house is worth now. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> It was worth more than it was at the peak of 2007, right? So not only did I lose money in the short sale, wrecked my credit for 10 years, unable to buy a house for 10 years because of the, sh- you know, all of that, the house is now worth more money. <laughs> and the Chris like, you fool. <laughs> you know, you, we do the best we can in the moment given the information and the circumstances that we have, right? I can take solace in the fact that I wasn't the only person to buy in 2007 and to lose a lot of money and to also sell at a terrible time and to have a credit wrecked, right? There was millions of probably some other room here. Right? You know, or driving, right? This is a common one, right? You, you, I often drive down to um, uh, Palo Alto and, and, you know, Silicon Valley and you got this choice, the 280 or the 101, 280 or the 101, <laughs> you know? And I'm tense because I know if I make the wrong choice, the critic is going to be on my case, right? And of course, as soon as I hit traffic, it's like, you should have taken the 101, you fool. Why didn't you look at your app? (laughs) And then sometimes the critic can take both sides, 
Right? Critic has a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not a fixed thing. It's why it's, 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 it's very movable, it's pliable, it's, it's subtle at times. You know, it'll, it will, you know, I'll get on the 280 and like, ah, oh, free, no traffic. Good job, good choice, you're doing great. And then you hit traffic, oh, you blew it. Walter Scott said, caught the critic's smile, nor dread his frown. Right? So we often pander to the critic. We often try and get a stroke from the critic, some praise from the critic. But the more authority, the more we listen to the critic, the harder the slap will be when we, when we, when we mess up, which we inevitably will probably that day. Right? And a lot of this, the emphasis in today is noticing how much you listen and how much attention and authority you give to the critic. Because in reality, the critic is just, it's a mental process. It's a bunch of thoughts, habitual thoughts, that we ascribe a certain validity and truthfulness and objectivity to. There's a myriad of thoughts in our head every day, right? tens of thousands, but we believe certain ones more than others. Right? And the classic example, you know, you get a performance review at work, you've had a great year, it's been very successful, your manager's like, your, your performance review is 98% positive. But there's one little thing that, you know, could do with a little, it's his job to sort of give you a little something to work on. So he gives you a little feedback about, you know, how you could develop in this way. What are we thinking about at night at two in the morning? Not the 98% glowing things, but the, the, the one negative thing. Right? That's the bias of the mind, the negativity bias of the mind that we want to pay attention to. So back to that quote from Walter Scott. So sometimes the judge is encouraging it can manifest like a coach, right? sometimes like a taskmaster, but sometimes like a coach, like, hey, doing well, it's good, you know, good work, good job today. But again, as we listen to that coaching voice, if we try to pander to every beck and call of that coach, it becomes like a tyrant. For example, you know, maybe you, um, you know, reading all this research about and how important it is for the nervous system and, and the brain and blah blah blah. So you you know you're tired. So you you know it's Saturday and you decide to sleep in and uh, you know just skip all your morning routines and just give you you know so you sleep in, sleep through your alarm nine o'clock and you feel refreshed. But then your critics like, well you slept through you you didn't meditate today. And you didn't exercise. And you're such a lazy slob for sleeping in so long. You've got all the things to do. You can't win with the critic. So as people said earlier, the most common voice is uh, the not enough voice. To think about the ways that your critic says you're not enough. You're not smart enough. You're not wealthy enough. You're not young enough, good luck with that one. You're not slim enough, you're not strong enough, you're not mindful enough. You know, it follows us around, right? You come to Spirit Rock, well, you're not compassionate enough. You go to the gym, you're not fit enough. 
You go to work, you're not smart enough. You go to, who knows what it is, to a um, dance club and you don't, you don't dance enough, well enough. And this is a pervasive dis-ease that I think runs through our lives, it runs through this culture, this sense of scarcity. We're not enough. And if we believe that voice, we're going to suffer. Right? We actually are enough, we are sufficient, we are whole, unless we believe that voice. Or we read, you know, magazines that tell us how we should look and how we should be and what we should wear and all of that stuff. I tell this story of, uh, I used to work, um, I used to do some mindfulness consulting in a hedge fund, um, in a client's hedge fund. And um, this was back pre-crash, so it must have been early 2000s. And... Um, They'd had a. It was a very successful hedge fund. They'd made, but this particular day, the, the trader had made an insane, insanely successful trade. The company had made tens of millions of dollars that day. And I was due to see him in the afternoon. Where I was meeting with lots of lots of the people there. And he came into the office, and I was expecting him to, you know, be a little kind of full of himself. He just made a few tens of millions of dollars for the company. It's like. Seems like a good day to me. Um, and he looked really stressed and anxious. I was like, wow, that's weird. And he said, yeah, you know, it was a good day, but you know, if I'd held on a few more hours, you know, I, I literally would have made a few more million dollars. It wasn't enough. You know. What was that phrase from John Rockefeller? How much is enough? A little bit more richest man in the world was. So think about the places that this shows up. Right? One of the places I hear the critic the most for people is around parenting. Any parents in the room? Right? Anybody feel like they're a good enough parent? <laughs> good. Good job. Good job. Good job. It's, but it's pretty rare, so you're good work. Mostly, you know, it's, it's the hardest job in the world to parent a child. How do you, you know, it's the most beautiful and also just impossibly, you know, complex. And it's so easy for the critic, the comparing mind, the judging mind, the not enough mind. I could have done, could have, would have, should have done this and sent them to that school and given that, whatever. This is Annie Lamott, who's a wonderful writer. She says, I'm probably just as good a mother as the next repressed, obsessive, compulsive, paranoiac. <laughs> okay, so there are other ways the critic manifests, but this is, um, maybe that's enough for now. Don't want to totally depress you this morning. to do something. Can I get a volunteer? Please, Miriam. Uh, can you ask uh, uh, what we need is um, uh, small pieces of paper and pencils. So um, and maybe a couple of volunteers can go and maybe help do that. So just cut up some scrap paper. They, they probably have it in the office and then I mean, it looks like half the people have journals here. How many people have something to write on? Okay, great. 
So we don't need that much. My critic's thinking about having something to say about me not getting this together, but... <laughs> All right, well, it just gives me time to say a few more things. Perfect. So one thing I want to make clear, and I'll probably reiterate this through the day, is to make the difference between judgment... So raise your hand if you need paper or pencil, because they're coming round at the back. Um, thank you, volunteers. Um, so, so I want to make this, ding- this important distinction between a judgment and a discernment. Judgment, which is value-laden and has an implication about our worth, our value as a human being. So I'm going to repeat that. I want you to get this. A judgment is a value-laden statement. The judgment is a value-laden implication that implies something about our goodness, our worth, our value as a human being. So, so a discernment is a thought that doesn't have that same emotionally laden baggage. So, for example, you just meditated. The discernment might be, oh, you're really distracted. You were barely focused on your breath. It was really hard for you to pay attention. There was a lot of thinking and planning. Right? That's just a discernment. No judgment about you as a person or as a meditator. The judge comes in and with the same meditation would say, well, that was pathetic. I mean, you were barely focused. I mean, I mean, kind of a waste of time, don't you think? I mean, I mean look around. Everybody else looks like they're really, really meditating well. And you just couldn't stop thinking about breakfast. Like, I mean, get a life. You know, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but maybe not. You know, like you tried yoga, you couldn't do that, and now you're meditating. Like, you know, what's next? Like, you know, qigong, I don't know. So, but it, within that, and and the the thought itself is one thing. Like, that was pathetic. But the implication is, it's pathetic, and therefore you're a bad person. You're a lesser person. You're less worthy. You're less valuable. You're less good. Right? It sounds simplistic, but because it is simplistic, the judge is simplistic. It's very, you know, it, it's a primitive early development of our brain that's very rigid, good, bad, right, wrong, etc. So just to notice, so the reason I say that is because one of the first questions I have when I teach this work, and it's often with people who need uh, to use a quick judgment at work, lawyers, physicians, analysts, you know, many therapists, there's many, many things in our life and our work where we need that critical discernment, right, to make decisions, to strategize, to plan, to assess somebody, 
So we can assess and evaluate and discern and discriminate without it being judgmental in the way I just defined it. We can assess, oh, you know, I'm I'm much more overweight than I normally am. That can be a a non-value-laden discernment. Right? Or we can discriminate that the air is clearer in here than out there. Right? That's a, we need to use that critical faculty for many things. But we're isolating the critical judgment. I use the word, when I use the word judgment, I'm using it in that emotionally laden, heavy way. So for all of those who had that question, like, well, what about this critical mind I need for, you know, when I'm, when I'm in a courtroom or whatever? Right, that's a very useful faculty. Right? But when applied to ourselves, internalized, when it's implying something about our worth, that's when we need to pay attention. Okay, so the reason I wanted you to have something to write with and something pen to write with, something to write on, um, is... I want us to do a little exercise, and we're going to use this material uh, a few times today. And then we'll take uh, a break. I'd like you to uh, write the list of your top ten judgments, your top ten self-judgments. And this might be really easy, because they might be so familiar. It's like, oh yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so write out the list of your judgments the most common judgments yes self judgments yeah yeah. today's mostly around ourselves even though what goes in goes out but yes self judgments and notice how you feel as you're writing them
And notice if they come out easily. Notice if it's sort of like, oh, it's actually only two or three, and I thought there was a lot more in there. So just, and you might have more than ten. So if you've got more than ten, keep writing. Just really helpful. Keep them succinct. Keep them sort of in the voice that you hear them. for a few more minutes.
I'm seeing lots of essays here. This could be a long workshop. We're going to extend it for a few days. All right, so um, we'll take a break in a minute, but just let's just put your pens down and um, just close your eyes and just sense your experience. Like, what's it like to have just named those common thoughts, voices? Notice what residue that's imprinted, that's leaving in your mind, in your heart. Notice if those thoughts, judgments feel true. And also notice if there's a way that you can if if what's here is painful, can you hold it with some care, some kindness, some friendliness? Right? Not painful, not easy to think about this stuff, to write about it, to feel it. Can you be kind with the pain of this? with a poem from Robert Bly called People Like Us. There are more like us all over the world, confused people who can't remember the name of their dog when they wake up and people who love God but can't remember where he was when they went to sleep. It's all right. The world cleanses itself this way. A wrong number occurs to you in the middle of the night. You dial it. It rings just in time to save the house. And the second story man gets the wrong address where the insomniac lives and he's lonely and they talk and the thief goes back to college and even in graduate school you wander into the wrong classroom and hear great poems lovingly spoken by the wrong professor and you find yourself. So we're going to take a 10-minute 
break. There's teas out there in bathrooms. Um, let's stay in silence, partly because there's the retreat going on upstairs. And also, I just want you to stay present to the theme, the material, what you wrote. You might even re- read what you wrote. You might add to it. Or you can even think about how you prioritize, like which ones are most common or most potent. We'll come back in at 11.40. If I could get a volunteer up here for a second.
Some people have been asking about the first poem that I read. It was by Linda France called Dreaming the Real. Okay, so welcome back. <clears throat> so I'm um, going to ask you to get out your those same pieces of paper or journals. And we're going to do an exercise with this very lovely material. <laughs> Anybody like to come up here and tell us what your judgments are? <laughs> You know, what, you know, maybe in 10 years when everything's uber digitalized and you've got, you know, some kind of writing thing that goes up onto the screen and, you know, when you go to Google offices, some of them, they, they have, um, they just, uh, this randomized um, screen that shows up dip searches that are happening real time. So we'll have a screen and it just will, we'll just, pop up all the different judgments that are being written down. So we'll see the, like that poem, the reason I read that poem by Robert Bly called People Like Us is because people are like us. And one of the most beneficial things of this day is realizing you're not alone. Because one of the, the, like, life is challenging Judging makes it doubly challenging. Thinking we're the only one who has a judge is triply challenging, right? So there's like it, it compounds upon itself. So if you look around the room and you go, oh, I guess I'm not the only one who has a judging mind, right? There's like a hundred and some people here. Oh, I guess I'm in good company. Um, so we're going to do an exercise in that spirit and... Um, What I'm going to have us do is you're going to get into pairs and um, we're going to take turns doing an exercise and uh, we're going to use um, questions that come from Byron Katie's work. So Byron Katie is a spiritual teacher looking about mostly oriented towards uh, understanding and, and deconstructing our beliefs and the critic is nothing but a belief making machine. And um, so we're going to use three questions that she uses in her work. The first question, so we're going to, basically you're, you're going to read one of your judgments to your partner. You know, like, um, I'm a terrible parent. And then you're going to apply these three questions. And so the, the other, your partner will ask you these three questions. Is it really true that you're a terrible parent? Is it really true? And of course, you might say, yeah, it's true. Or you might say, well, that's not actually, it's real, that's a gross exaggeration. You know, at times I could be better. Okay. Second question What do you get for holding on to that belief? Right? Or how does that make you feel? 
Or can you think of one good reason for holding on to that belief? But basically, how does it, what, what's the payoff? Well, the payoff for that is I feel like a terrible parent. I feel like a bad person. I feel less worthy. I feel shame. Right? That's, it, it's a negative payoff, but it's, it's, there's, some, there's something, um, there's usually something, there's definitely some consequence. You, you could think of consequence rather than payoff. And the third question is, um, so the second question is, what's the payoff for holding that belief or believing that thought? And the third question is, who would you believe with that? Who would you be without that belief? Well, if I didn't have that view that I'm a bad parent, I'd probably feel better about myself. I'd probably feel better about the way I'm raising my children. Is it true? What's the, what's, what do you get for holding that belief? Who would you be without that thought, that belief? So, as I said, so one person, partner A, to figure out who's going to go first, reads the judgment, I'm a terrible parent. Your partner will, will ask you those three questions one at a time. Is it really true that you're a terrible parent? You know, and you can respond however way you like. What do you get for holding that belief? Who would you be without that belief? Right? So you go through. So once you've gone through that list, and do this somewhat succinctly. Don't take, don't, it doesn't have to be an essay response. Just to, you know. And then you switch roles. So then partner B says, okay, I'll, I'll share one of my judgments. Um, uh, I just feel really unlovable. No, that's not, because that's not, that's not. The judge would say, you're really unlovable. Or maybe you're a pathetic meditator. How about that one? Since we're in a meditation hall. So you go through those three questions. Is it true you're a pathetic meditator? Well, etc. Right? So you're taking turns working with a judgment. So, and you can decide which judgment you want to work with. Some of the judgments you might not want this other person to share, to know, and that's fine. You might choose to work on a really gnarly one because this is a good opportunity to work on gnarly judgments. So you actually get some... The point of this is the more we work these statements, the more... Root, capacity we have when we're home alone to actually have some ability to work with it. Right? So you might choose some of the harder ones. But maybe the first one you maybe not choose the most crushing one because you might just just feel collapsed. Yeah. Any questions about that? Yes, please. So my question is with your, let's say, experience, are we should we, whatever, but is it for us to be with someone we don't know or mm-hmm. someone that we came with? Right. Is there any, with your experience? Yeah. So the question's about, should we, if we come with someone, should we do it with the person we came with or, some, or a stranger? I think there's pros and cons to both. I think whatever feels, this is quite a vulnerable exercise, so I think go with what feels comfortable. Is, 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 yeah. and, and actually I think it's good to do it with friends or partners because ideally you want to take these practices and practice them at home because this is not going to be fixed in a workshop and if you're here with family, friends, partners then great, do, you know, you, you're only, we're only going to get time to go through a couple each today but you might have 20 on your list and go home and practice this like it's good to practice it even though it's a little not so pleasant it's, it's good work, you know. So, uh, yeah, thanks for the question. Any other questions? 
So if this doesn't feel comfortable to do it with a person for whatever reason, you can do this inquiry on your own, go through the questions on your own. But my experience is it's not as impactful. And it's really helpful. One, it's actually very powerful to share your judgments because it's part of de-shaming. The judging mind shames us. And to share a judgment, you know, most likely the other person has something very similar, like, oh, I think I'm a crappy parent too. Or, yeah, I think I'm a useless... Ma-. You know, mostly we have the same judgments. Slightly different, you know, context and whatever. But So um, it's actually powerful just to... Even just... You could just read your list would be powerful. And you could do that as part of this practice. Other questions? Yes? So we'll have about 20 minutes. So give you, you know, at least time to do two or three. It depends, and you might work quicker than that. Yeah. And I'll come round if you get stuck or have questions. Please. Do you recommend kind of working with one at a time, like going back and forth with one person shares one, another person shares one? Or? Yes, you go back and forth. So one person, partner A, sh- shares a judgment. You work through the three questions. And then partner B shares one of their judgments and you work through the three questions and then you go back to partner A, they work in the judgment. Yeah, so you're going back and forth. So, so, make sh- so people have equal time. Yeah. Okay, so find a partner. Raise your hand if you don't have a partner. You might need to stand. You might need to spread out in the room. Look around if you need a partner. Raise your hand if you need a partner. Look around you, look behind you, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you need a partner. Raise your hand if you need a partner. So I'm going to... I need a volunteer. I need a volunteer. I need a volunteer to... um, So, this person's going to work with your partner, I'm afraid. And we're going to have to figure out what to do with you. I think... or, or, Or create a group of three. Create a group of three. Yeah, yeah.
We're only halfway through, but I'm going to keep walking around, and if you have a question, please just grab me as I walk around.
bringing your conversation to a close, thanking your partners, and coming back to your seat. And if we can get two volunteers to do mic running, please. So for questions. Can we get another volunteer to operate this mic? Thank you. Okay. So notice what you're feeling. Having done this, please feel free to come back to your seats. You don't have to, but if you'd like to. Um, just notice the impact of both doing that and also listening to someone with their stuff, which may not be that different to your own stuff. Any comments, questions, observations? What did you notice during that exercise? Please, the back there. Put the, put the mic close to your mouth. And actually, if we can get a volunteer to get um, uh, Sean from the office to turn the volume up, thanks. Maybe try the other mic. That's not on. Keaton, you can keep talking. Yes. No, good to see what 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 arises, you know, what the possibility when that that judgment's not happening, and then noticing how quickly the judge latches onto that and then beats us up for not doing the very thing that we're trying to devote. You know, it's a never-ending process. It, it, there are buttons on the mic. Ball's not on. Ah, okay, great. All right. Please at the back there. Uh huh. the soundboard on, Jesse, for the mics? Uh, it's on. Yours is? It's on now. Oh, okay. So, I don't know if this is the payoff for this particular one, but I remember hearing this nugget the other day, um, and I didn't have a notebook to write it down, and I wanted to remember it, but that's how the brain is lately. Guilt. Is there something about guilt as a payoff? Yeah. That you could articulate again? Yeah. Me? Stops you feeling whatever's under the guilt shame regret 
Are there others besides guilt that you could just rattle off? Um, like, uh, you mean the kinds of you, ju- judgments that I could rattle off? That... Not the judgments. I, I got my 20 of those. <clears throat> it's more a matter of what is the payoff I'm getting from believing them. Yeah. Because so I love the third question, and yeah. have great answers for those. Yeah. What is what am I getting by living in this right. mess? Yeah. Um, so it's, I, I realized I was just in discussion with another pair over here about the, the word payoff is, is, sl- is slightly misleading um, because it, the better phrasing is, is, is what do you get for holding that belief, right? So it's, it's a little more broader than because often it doesn't seem like there's any payoff. Um, but for example, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, th- what we get is we stay small. We stay safe. We stay unseen. We keep our nose under. We just hope nobody, you know, um, we, it, it protects us from taking risks. Um, uh, here's the, the main, one of the main ones is um, it's, it, maintain, it allows us to maintain our identity. To, to challenge our, anything that challenges our identity of who we think we are is very disturbing for our, for our psyche, for our ego structure, right? So if we believed, if our parents told us we were not that smart, which is not uncommon to get that message, not by any harmful, you know, not any intention from the parents, but just how that can happen through various, various means. Um, and actually, we were very smart and very intelligent, and we have a PhD, and the, to challenge that view means challenging a whole identity that we built a life on and, 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 a, and a self-organization around. So um, the, 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 the critic keeps us sort of congruent with that old belief that's safe. We feel safe. We feel familiar. We feel comfortable. And our ego hates the unknown and the unfamiliar. You know? So, yes, please. Here in the, in the pink. In the... It's a good pressure thinking I'm lazy or I'm going to fuck this up mm-hmm. because that's what would happen if I wasn't thinking like that because I, I don't know what would happen. I wouldn't get anything done. Right. Well, that's right. So, that's, that's... so I was almost attached to like, liking that I'm talking to myself like that. Right, right. Yeah, I had this conversation at the frontier earlier also. So this is a, one very common reason we hold on to it. We, th- we think if I didn't have a critic that was booting me out of bed in the morning and getting me to work and getting me to clean the house, my life would fall apart. I'd be a mess. I'd get fired and, you know, I'd never wash my hair or whatever, you know. Um, and that may be true. My, the problem with that is the, the payoff for that is that you live with your critic. So it's, it might get you to work on time, but it also means you feel miserable, right? So, and it's a trade-off, right? And the question I have for you in this theme in general is, are there other ways? Are there other ways to motivate yourself other than flagellation and shame? And there are. There are many ways to inspire and motivate and to move us, right? Will and inspiration and commitments and vows and you know all many ways supports and other than shaming, 
right? So yes, it does have a certain, you know, will, egoic will has a certain, uh, you know, strength, but it's brittle. No, it's not fluid, it's not adaptive, it's limited, it's tiring, and the net effect of it is we feel under the constant vigilance of this shaming, critical parent, basically. And on the first one, when you say, is this really true, are all the answers supposed to be no? Uh, no, no, because, no, and this is... The, like, yes. Yeah, no, because the judge, you know, you know, like, um, you know, the judge can be pointing out something that's very true, like, um, your house is a mess, your house is always a mess. Maybe it is always a mess. Who cares? Right? right. So, we often we often are very busy trying to defend against the critic because we don't want to, oh, I can't, I can't possibly have a messy house. Well, maybe I do have a messy house and maybe I don't give a shit that it's messy. You know, or it's just not priority. And it's okay to be messy. Like, except my judge thinks I, you know, I grew up in a tidy house and my parents think I should have a tidy house and I don't. So plenty of times it's true. Like, you're a bad person because you missed your best friend's birthday last week. Yeah, I did. I missed their birth. I can't believe I spaced it out, but I did. Shit happens. Okay, so I send them a belated birthday card, or I, you know, apologize that I, you know, missed something important to them. So, and this is where we, you know, to, to, to trying to interrupt living in fear with the critic. If we can be okay with what the critic says, like, yeah, my house is messy. Yeah, I'm I'm often late for meetings. Yeah, I um. Don't plan as well as I could. You're right. Thank you. End of story. Right? Not you're a bad person because of that. Not you're pathetic and unlovable and never find love or whatever the story is. It's like, yeah, I, you know. And then what came up in a comment from talking to some other people was the judge also makes then a generalization. Well, your house is always messy. You're always late. You're always like, no, that's never true. Sometimes I could do with, you know, like I'm not the most organized person, things fall through the cracks, I might double book an appointment, da, da, da. yeah, that's not my strength. And, 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 you know, shit happens. But does that mean I'm a bad person? Does that mean I need to live in fear around it? No. It's like, oh, I messed up, okay, could have done better, end of story. Right? That's the difference. So, and actually when you can agree with your critic, when it's actually factual, it can take the sting out of it. It's like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I missed my mother's birthday. Thanks for reminding me. But I don't need to hear it 50 more times. I got it. Doesn't mean I'm a bad son or daughter. Yeah. One of the payoffs that I get from several of my beliefs, and maybe this will resonate with other people, is the illusion of control. Mm. If I believe that a bad thing happened to me because I'm not worthy then I have control over that bad thing ever happening to me again. Right. Is the idea. Like, if I fix myself, that bad mm. thing will never happen to me again. So yeah. It's definitely a hard one for me. Right, right. Because there's an inherent insecurity in that control, because it's actually not true. Yeah. But it's a way we, yeah, we try. I mean, th- these are all faulty ways to protect us from suffering. Right? The critic, you know, it's not trying to harm us in a, in a way that some, you know, it's it's a misguided attempt to save us from future vulnerability and suffering. But it's become distorted and overreached, 
And, uh, you know, the older we get, the more ineffective, actually. Yeah. Yes, please, at the front. And then we'll actually go to Mike here, and then Mike down here. Well, I wanted to follow up on uh, your observation um, in the dialogue you had. How do we balance the critic versus ambition? Mm-hmm. Because the critic often drives us to achieve things and overcome obstacles. And mm-hmm. can you go a little bit more into, if we're not going to use the critic to motivate us, how do we find more healthy ways to mm-hmm. uh, motivate us to do mm-hmm. things that are difficult in our lives to do? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it, from the first thing begs the question of, if I really care about something, which is fueling the ambition, that care or that passion, I think, is going to be a better motivator than some idea that the judge picks up that therefore then I should do. Right? So, um, you know, I think, I think it behooves all of us to look at what other ways do I motivate myself to, um, you know, reach my goals, right? So, um, you know, I just had a meeting on the way over here with a student and we're, gonna, we're starting to build this organization for my nature work that's hopefully going to be impactful for a lot of people. And, but for me, it's a lot of meetings and it's a lot of work and I don't have a lot of time to do that. But I really care about the end result, about helping other people connect with nature and all of that. It, when, I, when I stay attuned to the, the, the positive effect it's going to have on other people, that gets me to show up and, and plan a meeting and, and do all the necessary work rather than, oh, I should do that because it's a good idea. Right? That, it doesn't, I, I find that the, the, the pushing that comes from the critic not very sustainable. You know? It goes a little way, but it's also, it feels harsh. It feels like pushing something uphill. It feels, sometimes it feels a little uh, violent, um, the pushing. So what other ways can you motivate yourself? I think inspiration, passion, caring, right? They're better, motiva- they're better long-term motivators than judging ourselves for slacking off if we don't do the work. I'm not saying there's, there's not a place for, all right, it's Saturday morning, I don't want to go to that meeting, but, you know, I need to step up, right? But that doesn't have to come from the critic. It can come from conscience. It can come from caring about other people at the meeting. It can come, come about through vision. It can come about through responsibility and impeccability, and, right? Because the thing is, the more that we say we have a goal and we're using the critic to get us there, Whenever we're using the critic to support us doing anything, we're strengthening the critic. So yes, and we might get to our goal, but the 25 other things that it has a judgment about, it's going to have more weight because we've been listening to it. We've been giving it credibility. And I don't think it's, a, it's a, something we want to be giving that credibility to, that attention to. Because it just will keep, you keep digging deeper the, the strength of it. Yes, who has the mic? Yes, please. I have one. Yes, yes. Um, I took a day long with Byron Katie, and I still have trouble with this. Yeah. Um, But one of the things that's really up for me is my memory loss and how 
there's really just environmentally, biologically, there's nothing I can do about it. And I have trouble with thinking about that as not being judgmental, not being less than. And so I'm just open to suggestions you may have of other people maybe that you worked with that has something like that. Like how do you take that negativity out? I mean, memory loss, when is it ever really good? You know, when do you really have a great benefit from it? Um, I've, I'm just... I just own it, and so it's like I just come out with it and say, yeah, I have a bad memory, and I try not to have, like, anything attached to it, and right. it's got a negative connotation. So The negative connotation being? That, um, oh, she doesn't have a good memory, so she's less than someone that right. has a good memory. And who's thinking that? Um, me. Uh-huh. And I th- and I think other people probably think that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so we project our critic out onto others. Right, we live in fear of our critic, and we live in fear of other people's the, the projected critic onto others, which is mostly not the case. Right, just like if if you encounter someone with a bad memory, I doubt you're judgmental. You're like, oh, that sucks to have a bad memory because it does. It's I have a bad memory. I have a terrible memory, um, and other people might have some judgments about that. And um, I just say, I'm sorry, I just don't have a good memory. Like, it's, I do forget the important things that you've told me. And I'm sorry, but it's just, I can't do anything about it, you know. And then they get mad at me. Right, that's their problem. Yeah, and that's their judgment. And you say, I don't need your judgment about my memory loss because it, it's not my fault. There's nothing I can do about it. I mean, you can take some ginkgo and some this and that, and, you know. But ultimately, you know, it's kind of mostly how it is. Um, so, so yeah, it requires a radical acceptance that that's how it is. You know, um, they say mindfulness improves your memory. I've been meditating for thirty-five years. I have a terrible memory. What can I say? But I'm I'm accepting it. And when people close to me say, "I can't believe you forgot what I told you," I'm saying, "I'm sorry." But that it's not. I'm not trying to. You know, I do my best. It just goes out of mind. And then you're a caring, empathic person, and when someone says that to you and they say, well, you don't, must not really care about me <laughs> because you don't remember that really important thing that I told you. I can't believe it. Right, and you say, it's not personal, sweetheart. It's just my memory, right? And I, I hear that it's painful for you that that happens, and I feel pain too that I forget these important things, and there's nothing I can do. So whose fault is it? What value is blame? Right? And then we have to stop blaming ourselves. Can I read a poem for you about memory loss? Anybody else got memory loss? I may not remember it, though. (laughs) I I don't care. (laughs) What did you say? (laughs) This is from Billy Collins. The name of the author is... And listen to this poem. And the the utter non-judgment about losing memory. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you've never heard of and never ever read, as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack up its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away, a state flower perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay, 
Whatever it is you're struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall, well on your way to oblivion where you will join those who have forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bike. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Billy Collins, Loss. Loss, uh, Billy, he's ex-poet laureate. Um, You know... And this is, this is a good example, right? You know, our body starts to not function as well. It's our brain, our memory, you know, clarity of thinking, recollection. Um, our body doesn't function the same way, right? And we can beat ourselves up for losing our health or our vitality, whatever. And, you know, it's not that we don't do all we can to stay healthy and strong and, you know, healthy brain function and whatnot. And... We have to meet ourselves as we are. And the judge, you know, has a lot of views about that, which are completely irrelevant, really, you know. So it requires a radical acceptance and a radical kindness. Yeah? And, and saying, thank you for your opinion that I have a terrible brain or a terrible memory or whatever it is, not helpful, not useful, you know. Yes, please. Oh, Okay. You first, hi, and hi. then you. Okay. I think I've actually gotten a lot better about like um, accepting my judgments over the past year. I've been working at it, and now I feel like I'm surrounded by people that don't accept my <laughs> like, don't accept me. Like you were just saying, right? Like my friends will say, like Lauren, you're you could really be a better planner. Or, like right. uh, at work, they'll be like, you know, there's something there's something uh, about being calm and not emotional, Lauren, like right. someone said that to me. And, and it's like, I don't care if I show emotion. Like, I don't, <laughs> that's right. who I am. Or I don't care if I sometimes mess up at planning. That's who I am. But, mm-hmm. so I, I'm okay. But like, it feels like everyone around me mm-hmm. is harsh. And I feel myself distancing from like everyone and mm-hmm. isolating myself. Cause, mm-hmm. Except like my family, because they're kind, right? And I don't know. So do you have any recommendations about like how to respond, right? Mm-hmm. To people that do that to you and like reinforce your old judgments yeah yeah i know it's hard i mean it it, it's it's hard with ourselves it's hard harder when it comes from the outside right because we're already trying to fend off that the same judgments and then someone else reinforces either our own or something that we've heard from childhood or whatever um and 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 it's hard at work because sometimes you can't be as direct maybe it sounds like you can be a little bit um but sometimes you know if your boss is giving you criticism it's hard to just say hey you know sometimes it's not easy to have those open communication conversations so um you know so i think the inner work is not internalizing what they're saying um you know and if we hear it from five people there might there may be something like oh that's interesting five people are saying this i wonder if there is something to look at not to beat myself up, but like, oh, you know, we all have places we need to grow, you know, and that might be sort of, but we don't need to take the the sting in which they're delivering it, right? It sounds like, it sounds like you, maybe you know, every workplace has a culture, and and the, the, and in that culture, some, some things are acceptable, some things are not, right? It sounds like emotionality is not welcome, right? And if you're an emotional person, 
then you're going to get pushback. It may not be the right culture or workplace or team to be working with. You know, that's a bigger question. You know, sometimes we can leave, sometimes we can't. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it de- again, depends on the relationship. Sometimes, you know, like with, with someone saying, hey, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're forgetting means you don't care. It means we have to challenge those those assumptions or the judgments within the assumption assumptions within the judgment. Um, and um, and it sounds like you're also learning to speak your mind and say, "Hey, this is who I am. You know, I'm an emotional person. Like, I'm going to be myself here." So so it sounds like you know, advocating for yourself is really healthy. You know, and often we have to do that with people who know us really well when we start changing right? like you start meditating or you start developing more courage or more confidence or more whatever it is other people don't like this new you because they like you to be familiar and safe and and they might push back and it's like well sorry but this is this is what's this is what's developing and here I am you know so yeah yeah good luck yeah not easy Yes, please. So I had uh, I had trouble with the last question. Who mm-hmm. would you be without that thought? Mm-hmm. And I think for like twice I said I I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fine not to know. <laughs> I said I don't know, and um, and I think it's related to what you mentioned a little bit earlier about the identity and how we identify ourselves. And so um, what I've been sensing in myself is that. Um, I think, you know, I, I've been working a lot, like really a lot, a lot um, on myself. And it's really scary not to know who this new identity is without those thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely frightening. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like you're at a cliff and you mm-hmm. just don't, you're like about to jump and you don't know where mm-hmm. to <laughs> or if you're going to land. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, it's so interesting how these old um, ideas of the self and these inner critic thoughts like really can identify you you know um so as you're falling apart (laughs) as you're falling apart in terms of your identity you know and like who who would you be i mean i genuinely and then i made and then i made i was like well i'd be a lighter calmer person and i kind of started listing off all these beautiful words that I was like, but do I really want, am I really ready to be that person yet? I don't mm. know that I am really ready. To, I don't know that I'm ready to take that leap yet mm. because mm. it's really it's really disentangling, like mm. very slowly, very painfully. Mm. And, um, and it's, it's, it's good, it's good, but it's so scary. It's so mm. scary. <laughs> um, luckily, I, have a good, I think I have a good sense of humor, so <laughs> I can laugh about my pain. But... Um, it's really the the identity part. When you said that, I was like, oh, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's because I feel scared of not knowing mm-hmm. who I might be or how great I might be or how amazing I might be without, without those things. And it's like I'm just really scared. I'm really scared. And I'm not, af- and I'm not afraid to say that I'm scared. Clearly. I'm not afraid, yeah. but it's it's um it's the old thoughts that 
I, I know some of them aren't even my own. Because when I was a child, it wasn't like that. When I was a child, I was free and uninhibited and beautiful in many ways. So I, I just wanted to say, like, how do you or share um, my experience with the group and also, and also ask, you know, <laughs> as you're finding this new possibility of who you could become, how do you, <laughs> how do you stay patient, how do you stay patient and kind towards yourself, which what I've noticed actually is like little, like almost like, um, because most of you might know Lord of the Rings, you know, um, the guy who's like, my precious. Right. Call <laughs> what I That's like the critic. <laughs> I will keep you small and familiar and safe. <laughs> like sometimes I feel like when he like, when the ring's about to be taken away from him and you're so scared of that identity, that old identity being too, you just go, no! You know, you're like, no. It's like moments like that are like occurring left and right and I'm noticing that happen. And then I'll apologize immediately if I if I'm really that conscious of it. Mm. But it's like it's like it, the old identity isn't. It's like trying to stick, trying to stay. And and the new identity is going. Be patient. Be ever so patient. Mm. Because yeah. it's stripping off. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of inner, <laughs> inner wisdom in there, right? That voice that's saying, "Be patient. Be patient." Right? Yes. To trust that, yes. Right? Okay. And uh, we're going to do we're going to do some loving kindness in a minute, and that that is the key, right? Because when when we're, we're afraid, right? When we're afraid, what we need is holding. We need love. We need reassurance. We need, you know, hand on the leg. We need we need that calm, loving presence, right, from ourselves or from a loved one, right? And um, the fear is natural, right? We don't need to judge the fear or blame the fear. It's scary when we when we step into new terrain or we we're about to shed something that feels so familiar. As even though it's painful, it's a straitjacket, and it, but we don't know. You know, the snake doesn't know what it's moving into as it sheds a skin, right? It's slow and vulnerable. Right? So, if you're just being kind with your vulnerability, patient with your vulnerability, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And there's a poem, I can't remember the poem, maybe somebody knows this poem. Um, and it's about this journey of stepping off the cliff and the terror. And then they step off the cliff and they realize there's no ground. And so in that, there's no, there's no, there's no fear of falling because there's no ground, which is really life. Right? There isn't, we try to create ground with identities and positions and personalities and right but ultimately there's no ground right it's just that life is fluid life is uncertain right and um and that's why it requires courage and requires love and patience and so hang in there and trust the inner voice that says be patient be kind right get su- get support as you have here <laughs> thank <laughs> and, you so much yeah, yeah, yeah Thanks, beautiful all right, so maybe we'll stop there. I know there's more questions, but we can um, we can maybe take some more questions this afternoon. Um, seems like a very heartful.
place to, to pause, right? So we've been doing, you know, this work that's not easy, right? The critic work is painful. It can be unpleasant. It can be, sometimes it's funny, but it's, you know, it's, it's tender. It's raw, right? This is not, you know, something that we generally post about on Facebook, you know? It's like, oh, let me tell you what my judge told me today. No, it's, we, it's we, something we hide, you know? So you've done some hard work already is you've started sharing this shameful part of yourself with another. You've maybe heard, I didn't hear this from the questions yet, but I'm sure if I asked you, I'd hear it, right? To think about what was it like to hear someone sharing their judgments, right? Here you're, you know, sitting in front of a person, maybe someone you know really well, a stranger, and you can see that they're a good person, and then you feel the pain that they're carrying because they believe that they're stupid or that they're ugly or they're unlovable or they're not good enough. And you think, how can that be possible? You seem like a lovely human being to me. Right? So we start to feel empathy. We start to feel compassion. We start to feel our commonality of suffering. We start to see the delusion of the critic, how it's really distorted. It's really not accurate. Right? Um, we see the place that it holds in our life. We see that why we might hang on to it because it's sort of, you know, we believe it helps us in certain ways or helps us get certain places or it keeps us safe, right? Um, or it's familiar, it's like an old friend, even though it's a not very nice old friend. So, um, you know, it's good just to, it's like we're, we're stirring the pot here. We're bringing it to the surface. We're thinking about it, we're writing about it, we're feeling it, we're articulating it, we're sharing it, we're hearing about others. And, um, you know, this is all in service, I'm going to read this poem, this piece of writing, it's all in service of, um, uh, you know, bringing things into the light. Right? That unless things are brought into the light, it stays in the background. It stays festering. It stays you know, it has power. So, um, so I'm using light as the metaphor for awareness, and this is a reading from um, an archbishop, Francois Fenelon, from the 16th century, and he's writing about the metaphor of light or awareness and what happens when we start to shine awareness on ourselves and on our mind particularly. He says, as the light increases, or as awareness, mindfulness increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart or our mind a whole swarm of shameful feelings and thoughts and judgments. We never could have believed that we'd harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened we are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light, the awareness by which we see them becomes brighter. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. We only perceive our malady when the cure begins. Right? We, when we perceive the very torment that's causing us so much pain, that's the beginning of resolution right we've we've all lived with our critic and we know it quite well but to shine the light of awareness on it as painful and as hard as that is 
is the beginning of the resolution of that challenge, that, that pain. Right? So, and, and sometimes this work isn't pretty. It's not, it's not pleasant. Right? Like, oh joy, I'm going to work on my inner critical day. What joy? I mean, there's a certain joy in being together and, and doing good work, right? But it's also like, oh, it's kind of yucky, right? The critic has a yucky, hard, you know, it's hard to live with, you know? Makes it hard to be with ourselves. Makes it hard to sit in meditation because we don't want to sit with whatever unworthiness or judgment we might have. But unless we shine the light of awareness, we don't find the, the way through to work with it, to, to, to find space from it, to find freedom from it. Right. So over time, you know, as, as it is for me, mostly my experience, it's like, oh, there you are, old friend. Yada, 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 yada. I'm late for work again. Yada, yada, yada. They should have done yada, yada, yada. And my car's blah, blah, blah. Is that all you've got to say? All right, thank you. Very unoriginal. <laughs> and it's always got something to say, even after all these years, you know. You know, I'm, I'm coming to Spirit Rock and I'm, you know, preparing this morning and I take this call. The call goes on longer. You didn't leave enough time to prepare. What? Thank you for your opinion. I think I'm prepared. I wrote a book about the damn subject. I think I know a thing or two. <laughs> So shut up. <laughs> Let me get on with my breakfast. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, you've got to laugh. All right, let's just uh, let's take a few minutes just to sit with ourselves again. Take a few deeper breaths. Exhaling, releasing. Coming back into our bodies, into the present. Maybe putting a hand on your heart and just with that gesture of kindness in the same way that you might put your hand on a friend of a, sh- a shoulder of a friend just expressing a sense of warmth or friendliness like may i be okay may i love myself as i am may i accept myself as i am May I not believe all the negative voices of my critic. May I see and feel the universality of this judging mind, that we all carry this judging. And instead of judging, can we feel friendly or warm, compassion, friendliness. May I be free of pain from my judging mind. May I feel free from believing 
its voices, its thoughts. May I love myself just as I am. May I accept myself just as I am. And you might imagine yourself as a young child, infant, baby, newborn, and just seeing the beauty and the tenderness and the vulnerability of you as a young being, innocent, pure, goodness. May I love myself just as I am. May I accept myself just as I am. May I be free from the pain of the inner critic. May we all be free from the pain of judgment. May we all love ourselves, love each other just as we are. Close with a poem, well-known, well-read poem about this topic from Derek Walcott, Love After Love. It says, The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters, the photographs, the desperate notes. Heal your own image from the mirror. Sit and feast on your life. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Appreciating the good work you've done this morning. Not so easy work, but good work. Hopefully you're feeling a little sense of commonality that we're all in this together. We all have this painful tendency. We're all busily projecting it out onto everybody, including everybody here. You drop your cup outside and you, you know, and the smashes and you're thinking a hundred people are going to be judging you but everybody's concerned for you and you're the only one who's judging yourself you know that's how it goes people are much kinder people are much kinder for the most part than ever our projected judge will be okay so we're going to have lunch um So we'll take an hour for lunch. We'll come back at two. I'm going to say a couple of things about lunch. 
Um, so given the nature of the smoke out there, normally I'd say go outside, but I'm going to say go inside. Um, generally we don't eat in here, but you're allowed to eat in here. Um, and you're welcome to eat outside. There's tables out there. Um, I don't, if one of the volunteers can just run to the office and ask, we didn't collaborate on the, on, with the retreat upstairs. Can, can you ask if the upstairs is silent? Can, who, who's the closest volunteer? Can you? Unless you know. Yes. The, 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 silence. Silence. Yes. Okay. All right. So. Um, I, I think it was up to your judgment. That was Mary Ellen had said would defer to your judgment as to whether you wanted to maintain silence. Because we're the bigger group. Well, I'm just curious about what they're doing. I don't want to be talking if they're in silence. Uh, right. Okay. Well, um, Let me just find out what, if they're in silence or not. All right. Um, this is my book. Make Peace With Your Mind, book about the inner critic. I highly recommend it if you have an inner critic. Um, there's lots in the bookstore. I'm happy to sign copies. Um, I generally don't do a hard sell, but I do care about this topic, and I think this book is useful. They're in silence. Okay, so we'll stay in silence. Um, uh, you're welcome to talk outside if you want to go outside. Um, and um, after you've eaten your lunch, you're welcome to rest. You can lie down, take some of these mats. There's more mats in the closet there. Um, feel free to rest. I'd normally say go take a hike, but I don't think you should be hiking. Um, so make, make the, use this chance you can meditate, do some yoga, rest. Please. Derek Walcott. It's called Love After Love. Um, so enjoy your lunch. And uh, yes, please. So we're going to be back at 2 o'clock. Yeah. You know, a, a little whispering in here is fine, you know, if you're with loved ones, friends, you know, a little, but just keep it quiet so those who want to be quiet can stay quiet. Yeah. Okay. You can always eat in your car, I guess. <laughs>
Okay, wakey, wakey. For those of you who are in snooze land, we are going to start in a moment. So you might want to um, elevate up to the non-horizontal position, (laughs) just to wake your body up a little bit. Okay, so welcome back. Hope you had a good lunch and siesta or whatever was happening out there. Um, So I wanted to read something from Byron Katie since we were just doing an exercise inspired by her questioning. Um, This is from... uh, 10,000 names for joy or something like that. And this is this is a report of someone who is no longer affected by their critic. So listen up how it sounds. <laughs> Just, so she's busy ch- chopping vegetables, making dinner and stuff. Um, she said nothing, nothing lovelier than preparing salad all of its colors and greens and chopping and And just when I think life is so good it can't get any better, the phone rings and life just gets better. I love that music. As I walk towards the phone, there's a knock at the door. Who could it be? I walk towards the door, filled with the given, the fragrance of vegetables, the sound of the phone, and I haven't done anything for any of it. I trip and fall suddenly, but the the floor is so unfailingly there. I experience its texture, its security, (laughs) its lack of complaint. In fact, the opposite. It gives its entire self to me. I feel its coolness as I lie on it. Obviously, it was time for a little rest. (laughs) The floor accepts me unconditionally and holds me without impatience. As I get up, it doesn't say, come back, come back, you're leaving me. You owe me, you didn't thank me, you're ungrateful. (laughs) No, it's just like me. It does its job. It is what it is. The fist knocks, the phone rings, the salad waits, the floor lets go of me. Life is good. (laughs) Right? That's quite different. Right? How many of us say, oh, the floor is unfailingly there? (laughs) So this is Byron Katie. So that the questions that we did, is it true? 
what do you get for holding that belief? She, she, this is her, the work. That was, that's from her work. And then this is a book she co-wrote with her hubby, um, whatever his name is, um, Stephen Mitchell, uh, called Thousand Names for Joy or Ten Thousand Names for Joy. It's a great book, actually. It's a commentary on the Tao Te Ching, which he translated very beautifully years ago. All right, so um, we're going to do a couple of few things this afternoon. One is we're going to look at some some more detail around the critic, why the critic, and how it manifests. We're going to do a little inquiry around how that manifests for you, and then we're going to do some practice um, working very directly with your judgments in a very active way. So. If the critic is so painful and so difficult and so hard to bear, why do we have it? Why do we have one? Why do we listen to it? What's the function of the critic? If it's so, if it's so misery-inducing, why do we live with one? So this is, you know, a good question to ask. Um, this has been a question that's, you know psychologists have been looking into for you know more than a hundred and some years now right freud was one of the first people to articulate this voice he called it the superego it's the id which is the more primal instincts the ego and the superego the superego is the voice of conscience and there's actually some quite instructive things that he wrote about it he said the installation of the superego can be described as a successful instance of identification with the parents. The superego also takes on the influence of those who've stepped into the place of parents, like educators, teachers, people we looked up to as role models. He said the superego, the critic, can be thought of as a type of conscience that punishes misbehavior with feelings of guilt, and I would say more with shame than guilt, but sort of similar. The superego strives to act in a so- socially appropriate manner, whereas the id, this primal instinct in us, wants self, instant self-gratification. The superego controls our sense of right and wrong. It helps us to fit into society and our family structure and culture by getting us to act in social, socially acceptable ways, ways. And it does that through shaming. Right? So the reason why this, the, the critic is so powerful is because as a young infant, we, to survive a family and a culture and environment, we needed something very powerful internally to repress those primal instincts that are not welcome. Right? You watch any young child having a rage tantrum, right? There's a lot of pressure to have that child rein it in, right? So, because it's not socially acceptable to go around raging and smashing and hitting people and things, right? So the, the superego acts as that parental voice to shame and to keep us in line to maximize and optimize the flow of love and affection and attention and keep us safe and you know, within whatever family structure we're in. So it, it's a very early structure that, that matures fully by about the age of eight. So, um, 
so in that way, it's a young voice. It's a young structure. It's very, it's very primal in that way. Don't do that. You're bad. Do that good. Don't do that, you know, shame, rejection, judgment. Do that, get liked, get loved. I mean, it's, it's simplistic. And you can hear it in the, in, the, in the critical voice often. It's, very, it's not very nuanced. You know, it's very right, wrong, good, bad, me, you. It's very separating. So, and then that gets internalized, as was pointed to. And so even if, you know, maybe we're 45 years old and we still hear that parental voice, tidy your room, your car's a mess, you know, don't be rude in public. You know, whatever, the, whatever your messaging was as a child, right, that still lives within us. And as I've been talking about, the more that we listen to it, the more it lives in us. And the more we listen to it, the more it, we feed it. So, um, so that's the main functioning uh, embedded in early, early, early years. I also think it stops us from feeling pain. It's painful, but it actually represses feeling. For example, um, maybe you're feeling grief at the loss of a loved one. And rather than feel the sometimes intolerable feeling of grief, the critic will come and say, God, you're still grieving? Stop whining, get over yourself. Which we might hear from our culture, like I grew up in England, and you know, to express emotion and feeling was considered you know, sort of weak and not very socially acceptable. So, especially as a man, so you were told, like, stop being weak, stop being wimpy, get over yourself. Button up, you know, stiff up a lip. You know, just get on with it. And that's a way, it, that they're all judgmental messages of ways of suppressing feeling so we don't have to feel them. We don't have to make other people feel uncomfortable by showing them feeling. And then, then as the critic grows, we become loyal to it. We become dependent on it. We think we need... The, the critic becomes the voice of conscience. And we look to it to make ethical decisions. But because it's a very primitive, early structure, it's not very sophisticated. It's either good or bad. It's right, wrong. Right? That's, you know, life is much more complex than that. Right? When we're thinking about Investing ethically, it's very complicated. It's not just good or bad. It's subtle. And things have implications and consequences way beyond the simple thing we might, some company we might be looking at, for example. So I want to share some points, some generalized points about the critic. Um, the last point about, about why, we, why the critic is so alive is because... Um, the critic has made us believe we need it to function. Oh, I, you know, people have voiced that. If I don't have a critic, I'll never get to my goals. I'll never get to work on time. I'll never have a tidy house. I'll never be a good person. I'll just be this crazy wild slob, you know. And that's not actually true, but we, we believe that. We believe the, the critic's press release. So, Important thing to remember about the critic, it's not just mental. Right? It usually comes through words. You're stupid, you're not good enough, you know, that was pathetic. But it, it influences us physically, right? 
So I'm a writer, and I'm, I'm in the middle of working on a book. And uh, when I look at my schedule, I go, oh, I've got a free day to work on my book. How exciting. I'm going to get to my desk, and I get lots of work done. And I get to my desk, and I'm writing away, and I'm reading my editor's comments, and he didn't like that paragraph, and he didn't like the way that was said, and um, he didn't like, crossed that out. I thought that was great. And I'm starting like, oh, just kind of, this is kind of crap. <laughs> this is kind of heavy, and I start to feel kind of foggy-brained, a little dull. And it's like, oh, I'm going to go get some coffee and have some chocolate, and oh, what's happening online? And, you know, and so I start to feel foggy brain, low energy, kind of heavy, like the, collapsed in my body. Because I'm not hearing the, because the critic is operating on different levels. Mental, but it's physical, it's energetic, it's emotional. Right? And if you don't catch those, suddenly I'm like, I hate writing, I hate this book, <laughs> I'm going to go for a walk. <laughs> and, and, and often I'll, you know, like an hour into writing, I'll sort of go, wait, wait a minute, I'm feeling really crappy here, what's going on? And I'll, and I'll remember, oh right, the, my editor put that comment in that felt kind of a little judgy, and that's kind of undermined my confidence as a writer, and it, all of a sudden it's, you know, it doesn't take much to undermine, <laughs> you know, when you're doing creative work, it doesn't take a lot to, when there's one little comment to start sowing seeds of self-doubt. So, so good to notice for yourself, how do you feel the critic? Do you feel heavy? Do you literally feel collapsed in your body versus like really open and, and buoyant? Do you feel low energy? Do you feel kind of sad or kind of heavy inside emotionally? Does your, does your mind, your thinking get really clouded? How else do you feel the critic? Anybody want to shout out? Like the impact of it? Anxious. anxious. Yes, we can feel anxious. Mm-hmm. Fearful. Mm-hmm. Poor posture. Poor posture, right? Kind of collapsed over. Mm-hmm. Low Pardon? Low self-esteem. Low self-esteem. Constricting. Mm-hmm. Pardon? Got to get busy, right? Doctoring the house, you know, cleaning cobwebs. <laughs> Irritable. Irritable, right? Yeah. Everything's kind of grouchy and gray and grumpy mm-hmm. impatient mm-hmm. defensive we often get defensive when the critic's going so um, so a few of the points that I want to reflect on and then we'll do a little inquiry um, one of the things there are many things are mindfulness bells that, that, that in, encourage or invite us to attention and the critic is a mindfulness bell and what I mean by that is usually when our critic starts going on about something, it usually means something's happened that triggered it. And often what triggered it is a a potential social vulnerability. So maybe you're late for work. You hit traffic, you weren't expecting it, you're going to be late, it's an important meeting, your boss is there. And so your critic's on your case. Why didn't you get up early? Why, how, why are you always late? No, 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 no. The usual sort of annoying story. And if you dig a little deeper, what's going on, it's not about the meeting or it's not about being late, but you're putting us, you're, you're, it's a vulnerable situation, right? You're at work. You want to be seen to be caring and, and responsible. Your boss is there, so it might affect your performance and your evaluation, right? So you're, it's a socially vulnerable situation. 
So the critic in its attempt to protect you from that vulnerability judges you, or harasses you, or rails at you. In the attempt that if, if, if it really is harsh with you, maybe you won't do that again. Right? That's, that's the logic. If I just get on my case enough, shout at myself enough, that somehow next time it won't happen. Right? But actually what happens is we just feel terrible. You know, we're not only late for the meeting, but suddenly we feel stupid, and we feel undermined, and we feel hopeless. We can't even get ourselves together to get to a meeting on time. And all of that worthlessness or low esteem or anxiety, or whatever it is, that is not the grounds for making you a better functioning person that you will arrive at the meeting on time next time on time. Right? Do you get my logic? But we think it will, so we're like, oh, God, don't do the gang, you're stupid. As if that's going to help. It doesn't help. Look at how many times you've, done, you've berated yourself for something. Did it really help? No, it just makes you feel worse. So when the critic's going, notice the vulnerability underneath the judgment. Well, what am I worried about here? What am I, where's, where's the social anxiety coming from? Um, what, what's the identity that's being threatened? There's a wonderful book called Difficult Conversations written by the Harvard Negotiation School um, out of Harvard, surprisingly. And, um, and one, of the, they, they say the, one of the main reasons for communication conflict is, is this issue, is identity issues. Um, and this is very true with the critic. The identity issue is, and the three main identity issues they identify is, am I worthy? Am I a good person? And am I capable of earning love and respect? And for that example, when we're late for a meeting at work, those identity issues get triggered, which is vulnerable, hence the critic attacks. Are you following me? So, um, and, and again, I, and I haven't really talked about that word, the word attack. When the critic is judging you, it's an attack. It's not an idle comment like, oh, you're late for work. No, you're late for work and you suck, right? That's the, that's the difference, right? The difference between an observation and a judgment. The difference between a judgment and a discernment, right? And then as I was pointing to earlier, pay attention to how the critic lands in you because a lot of the critic work you're doing retrospectively. Right? Usually, just like when we're meditating, we usually don't catch the thought when it's arising. We catch the thought five minutes down the thought train when we're having pizza in Italy and we wake up and like, what am I doing having pizza in Italy? I'm meditating. All oh, right, I was hungry. I thought about pizza and then I'm on holiday, right? Same with the critic. We're, we're five minutes down a judgmental attack and they're like, what's going on? And we peel it back. We start feeling cloudy. We feel the heaviness. All oh, right, I'm worried about how my partner's going to think about me missing our anniversary date again, or whatever it is. Right? We, we feel into the, the deeper cause. So someone pointed this to, uh, pointed, about this, pointed to this earlier. Um, 
what I call in the book the swing door of the critic. What goes in goes out. What goes out goes in. If you practice doing a lot of judging here, guess what? When you're sitting on the bus or driving around or in a meeting, you're going to be judging people out there. If you spend a lot of time judging people out there when you're home alone, guess what happens? You judge yourself. It's, it's a two-way process. Right? So if you enjoy nitpicking and being judgy of others, which we do tremendously, don't do it because you're, going, you're strengthening that pattern that you, which will turn inevitably to yourself when you look in the mirror. It's just the, it's just the way it goes because it's a habit. So we need to ask ourselves, do we want to strengthen that habit? Right? So the practice I have in the book that relates to this chapter is when you look at people, to look at them positively rather than going, well, they look a bit sloppy or scruffy or stupid or you know, the hairs of... Whatever, 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 however we might judge. We look at them and find something that we appreciate. Find something that we like about their dress or the way they walk or the way they speak or something that starts to attune us to seeing positively rather than negatively. Right? You know, the Buddha said, whatever the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind and the heart. Right? This is like the cornerstone of these teachings. Whatever we incline towards, you know, whatever our preference or our bias is, we become that. If we practice judging people all the time, which we to be honest, come on, who doesn't like judging people? Mostly we like to judge people and gossip about people. Right? We do. Right? And that's how magazines sell and the junk on TV sells. We strengthen the judging habit. Right? And that's always a choice. Right? Okay, so I'll do a little inquiry and then I want to move into how to work more actively with the thought, judging thoughts themselves. So, a few questions. So for you, and we're going to, uh, we'll do this in a, as, as a, in a dyad. So there's a bunch of questions you're just going to speak to in a monologue. What triggers your judging mind? What triggers your judges, judgments? Maybe it's, you know, messiness or being late or being poor, or being single, or being whatever it is. What triggers your judgment? You know, being around your family at Thanksgiving. Ooh. Being around successful people. Um, being around spirit. You know, many, just innumerable places. Where, where, where does your judgment get activated? Maybe before you've gotten out of bed. And then where or how do you feel the impact of your judgments? Is it mostly mental? Or does it feel, does it lead to a lot of you know, sadness, heaviness, unworthiness, feeling crappy? And the third question, what helps? And we're going to spend the rest of the afternoon looking at what helps, but I want to just seed that question. What helps you work with it? Ignoring it, laughing at it, challenging it. What triggers the judgments? How does that impact you physically, emotionally, energetically, mentally? And what helps? So we're just, again, we're not, this is, you could spend all day on, the, on just on this exercise. So how we'll do this is um, 
All right, I'm going to do this. Um, so, get in, so first get into pairs, and I'll walk you through the exercise. Yes, sir. Uh, more yourself. We're mostly looking at the self-judging today. So find a partner, and if you don't have a partner, raise your hand, and I'll give you the instructions. Raise your hand if you need a partner. Everybody have a partner? Okay. Um, everyone has a partner? Who wants one? Okay. Good. So, listen up. So, um, so, partner A, partner B. Partner A can be the person with the longer hair. And um, so there's three separate questions here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through all three questions, both parties. So the first round, partner A will talk for a couple of minutes. What, what triggers your critic? Where does it arise? It's just a monologue. Partner B is simply practicing mindful listening, which is giving you full attention, However, you show someone you're listening, eye contact, nodding, you know, just really show that you're there, but you're not interrupting. I'll ring a bell after two minutes, and then partner B will, will answer the same question. What triggers my judgment is when I'm late for a meeting at work, or when I'm giving a talk and I mess up my lines, or whatever. That's the first round. And then I'll ring a bell, and then we'll go on to the second question. Okay? So, right now, partner A... Two minutes, what triggers my judgment is, and off you go. Just 
Oh, well, when I, when I treat myself to a sweet, to a croissant or something, and then, and then my self-critic is like, you're already too fat, right? <laughs> and then I really get down on myself. Although, although last week I've been on a no sugar. I've Okay, so switching roles, same question, partner B, what triggers my judgment, my critical mind is, partner A, simply uh, mindful listening. Okay. your conversation to a close and then the second uh, question is uh, what, what, how do you feel the impact of the judgments like what, what, what impact does it have do you feel is it foggy mentally do you feel heavy in the body is it energetic is it emotional uh, etc yeah. so pardon A just talk about how, how does how does it land? How does it make you feel when you're going about your day? Okay.
And switching roles, how does the critic impact you? How does it land? How does it make you feel? Two minutes, partner B.
Okay, last question, partner A. Um, what helps? What helps you work or deal with the critic and its impact? Yeah, what works, what helps, what do you do uh, that supports you working with it? And you might not have any effective strategies, and you can also talk about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Off you go, two minutes. Then that helps. That usually gets me to do something. The other thing is uh, is to say, okay, I'm just going to paint or draw for like half an hour. So I just make it small and doable. So that uh, that 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 works. Not all the time. But it works. It works some of the time. Um, the thing about when I'm late, um, that one's really hard um, because I feel very anxious about my economic situation. I really need to get this job that I'm getting trained for. Switching roles, partner B, same question. What works, what helps you work with the critic? Partner B, two minutes, what works, what helps? Your strategy of taking shorter length, you know, right. doing as much as you can, and, uh, as much as I can, uh -huh. uh, within a certain period of time. You know, it's often a lot easier and more productive than saying, you know, I'm playing with my neighbor to hide for three and a half hours. Because that is something that I can, you know, I can find some reason to get out of. But if I say, okay, I'm going to walk with lunch break for 20 minutes and then again another half hour later. Right. So breaking down right. the tasks is really, that's something I should also remind myself about writing or doing a little art project, just drawing, you know, mm -hmm. that, that is, I, I like that, you talk to something, just <laughs> hold up on the expectations and just sit down and right. do whatever. Uh, putting music in my ear. 
Thanking your partner, coming back to your seats. or comments arising out of that? Was that useful to do? Yeah, just to kind of... Again, it's, it's really just developing clarity. How does this happen? What, how does it land in you? How, how do you deal with it? So, um, yeah. Yeah, please, yes, over here. Dealing with it, you want to distract yourself? Yeah, I want to find some like distraction to not sit with it. And then we were kind of talking about, um, you know, what's the health? Because I'm sure a lot of you like have heard like sit with your emotions and like sit with how you feel without trying to distract it. And so just trying to decipher like what's the healthy amount of sitting with it, and then what's like mm-hmm. when to distract and. Mm-hmm. Um, then we kind of talked about maybe like the, the ability to identify the critic like sooner is maybe what's going to help you from mm-hmm. um, needing to sit with it for a long time. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it'll just kind of go away quicker or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, we'll we'll, we'll address the, the earlier part of the question about what to do with it or how to sit with it or how long to sit with it. Because you might, it might not be the good thing to sit with it. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, just like you wouldn't, you know, if someone's being abusive, you know, right. some you might interpret mindfulness as well. I should just be present to what's happening. No, if someone's being abusive, you, you know, remove yourself from that situation if yeah. you can. So similarly with the critic, that would yeah. be a more active, dynamic response. Thank you. 
great. Super. Okay, thanks. Hopefully, we'll, that will come more clear as we go through the day. Yes, hand up over here. Are you going to a hand over there? Okay, good. Can we get another mic runner? Thank you. Great. Yes, please. Me? Yeah. Oh, um, for something that helps me, I had a friend tell me this. It's going to make me cry to say it, but whenever I find myself judging myself, I usually feel really sad that I did it because I know to not, and then I'm, I'm just sad that... Um, I'm sad because it comes from like a deeper place of sadness when I do judge myself. Mm. But she taught me this thing that I do now. And I put my hand on my heart and I say, it's okay, little butterfly. And I imagine myself as a kid, like running around and how like I wouldn't beat that person up. Like I wouldn't beat myself up like I do now. And I would just be like, it's okay. Cause like mm. you're just learning and you're doing the best that you can based on like what happened in your past that like kind of you created all these barriers and things to like take care of yourself Mm -hmm. and so if you can so I just try to connect to my self as a kid Mm -hmm. and that helps me um forgive myself yeah beautiful what was it you said you said it's okay okay, little butterfly sweet yeah sweet thank you yeah very tender yeah yeah, so uh, one of the things that I was noticing uh, is the importance of ident- identifying, you know, where or how you're experiencing your inner critic because, um, you know, 50% or more than 50% of the battle is, you know, be- becoming aware, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and most of the time, of course, with our inner critic, it, we're quite aware of it, but, um you know, how it's coming up, I think, is really important, mm-hmm. you know. And um, that's, uh, you know, one of the things that, um, that if you don't have that idea of how it's coming up, then you won't be able to apply any, anything to deal with it. So right. that, that was something that was really come up in my conversation. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would just offer that. Yeah, yeah. No mindfulness. Awareness is key. Without self-awareness, no hope. Yeah, yeah. Good. Okay, so um, I want to dive into this next section, which is sort of the juicy part of the day. Um, And it's about working with the critic uh, in more dynamic, constructive ways. So um, I'm going to give a little background, and then we're going to do some practice. Um, So working with the critic, I'm just going to first speak to what our usual strategies are. And they're usually not so effective. So, um, so I, I've studied a lot in the Diamond Approach work, Diamond Heart School in Berkeley with Hamid Ali or Almas, his pen name. And um, so my, my orientation comes from, from that work. And one of the frames, it's actually a wonderful book, uh, was the only book that I could find that I thought was half decent on the topic. Um, prior to writing mine, it was um, Soul Without Shame by Byron Brown. And it's from that from that body of teaching, Soul Without Shame, Byron Brown. Very good book. Um, and they talk about the dysfunctional way to work with the critic is you engage it, like you engage an opponent. It's like engaging a 300-pound wrestler. It's like, not a good idea. <laughs> um, so, and one way of engaging is we start to have a debate with it. 
And the main way we debate is we try to rationalize. You know, maybe we get up and, um, you know, actually I was at my friend's house last night and it's like, oh, I had a 5.30 meeting. I just completely spaced it. It was a really important meeting I wanted to get to. And I just, just went off my radar. Fortunately, he was late too, so it all worked out. But, um, and um, the, immediately with the judging, you know, I could feel the judgment come, and then immediately following judgment is rationalizing. Oh, well, you know, I, did, I made the other meeting. <laughs> I really am a good person. You know, we start defending ourselves, right? But we're, we're on the back foot. And when you're on the back foot trying to rationalize and defend yourself against the critic, you don't win. It's just a pointless exercise. Partly because you're trying to prove yourself to a part of your psyche that you don't really want to be giving affirmation to, any attention to, right? You want to be ignoring it or not giving it any value. So notice how you, you well, know, you know, yeah, I mean, my house is a mess, but I really did a good day at work today and I'm really a good person. And, you know, we try to rationalize that we're okay in the face of this voice that's telling us we're not. And it's a hopeless cause. Because the engagement means we're giving it validity and authority. And that's what we don't want to be doing. It's from Dustin Hoffman, the actor. A good review from the critic is just another stay of execution. Right? We hang on for those positive little crumbs. Right? Because the critic, the critic can give crumbs. So the second not effective strategy is we counterattack we start getting angry and blaming and judgy with a judge, right? which doesn't work so well. Again, it's, we're giving a lot of weight to it. The third is we believe everything the judge says and we, uh, and we, we collapse. We feel, you know, as we've just been talking about, we feel heavy, we feel down, we feel diminished, uh, we feel deflated, we can feel depressed. I think, I think the critic, aside from the biochemical causes for depression I think that one of the main psychological causes for depression is self-judgment if you tell yourself enough for long enough frequently enough that you're terrible bad and useless of course you're going to feel depressed Um, and then lastly the the most least effective strategy for working with the critic is to judge yourself for judging (laughs) which we do I can't believe I'm judging myself I'm still judging myself God (laughs) And I'm judging myself for judging. That's pathetic. Get a life. Uh, counterattack. So you know, and you might have your own dysfunctional ways of um, working with a critic, like Ben and Jerry's ice cream, you know, or binge watching, or you know, acting out in ways to to prop our our flailing self-identity up, right? The ways that we look for love in all the wrong places and all of that. Um, So in in the literature, if you did a lit review of the the critic, there are two main camps of working with the critic, and I just want to name them even though I'm orienting towards one. The first camp is, um, and the Diamond Approach work and uh, Byron Brown and others uh, are in this camp where they treat the judge as, as, a, as a mechanism that attacks our well-being and, and therefore leads to a sense of diminishment and pain, and etc. 
The second camp, which is probably a bigger camp and a growing camp now because internal family systems theory, which is very predominant right now, but also voice dialogue, um, Helen Cedra Stone were the founders of that, um, Solcher Malioni's work on feeding the inner demon, um, sees the critic as a misguided ally to be befriended and transformed. Right? So one sees it as primarily a destructive voice. One sees it as a misguided ally trying to help us, but in trying to help us actually causes us a lot of heartache. So, and, and there's value to both, right? There's both views are valid. Um, I've tended to lean more towards the diamond approach view of the critic as being this very powerful, malevolent force in the mind, but I also see that it's a misguided uh, attempt at trying to protect us from vulnerability, but doing so in a very painful way. Um, so, that aside... So I'm just going. I'm I'm going to list some ways that I think are helpful to work with the critic, and there's quite a lot of them. There's 18 of them. <laughs> I, I do have a handout here that summarizes what I'm going to say, and I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 11, at least 12. There's probably more in that I've condensed into two, um, and um, and then the book. If you have the book, there's a chapter called the inner critic toolbox which which goes into detail about these and actually the, the whole book is a really an elaboration of what I'm going to talk about. So um, first and foremost as I talked earlier we use mindfulness, right? That clarity of awareness that even knows that we're thinking that knows that we're judging that knows that that is operating in our heads, right? Most of the time we don't even notice it. It's just this nagging, quiet voice that just keeps eroding our sense of well-being, right? So, and with mindfulness, we use that discernment to know the difference between a judgment and an assessment, a judgment and an evaluation, a judgment, and again, going back to my definition of a judgment, which is a value-laden statement that has an implication about your worth as a human being. It's not that your room is messy. Your room is messy, which is proof that you're a bad person. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the emotionally laden baggage that comes with the critic. Right? So with mindfulness first, we see, oh, just like in meditation, we see that we're thinking. We see, oh, that's a judgment. I'm driving to work and I'm late and I'm judging myself. Or I am just dropped my kid off school and I'm driving home and I'm judging myself about how we communicated this morning. So just a simple awareness. And then to name it, oh, judging. Judging is happening. To give it a name, judging, judging. When I was on retreat, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, would say, count the judgments in a day. Each time you notice you're judging yourself or another person, you count. One, two, 17, 453, 869. And just be curious to see how many judgments you get. You'll probably miss most of them, but even with missing most of them, you still might get up to several hundred. Right? So do that, just to see. And once you get to like 350, you're like, come on. Even if you get to 53, it's like, come on. Like, enough already. Like, just put it down. Um, notice also with mindfulness whether you believe the judgment, whether you take it to heart, whether you really listen to it, like listen to it as a voice of truth or a voice of authority. 
Notice how allied you are with the judge. And one way of looking at that is noticing if your judgment is, I am a stupid person or you're a stupid person, both referring to myself. Do we, do we judge ourselves, I'm stupid or you're stupid? It's actually better to use the you versus the I pronoun because it's a little one step removed. If it's I'm stupid, it's much more part of the fabric. If it's you, there's a little space. So just notice your pronoun. So the key thing with mindfulness, with not just true judgment, with many things, is it allows the space of awareness to have a little space between the experience and the knowing of it, between the activity or judgment and the knowing of it. So we can step back and go, oh, look at that, I'm judging myself again. That creates a little bit room rather than being lost in the railing on ourselves for something, right? So that in itself can bring a little bit of freedom. We just know, oh, there's the judging mind doing its thing again, somewhat out of my control. Writing your judgments down like we did today. You know, maybe you get from home from work and you had a lousy day at work, you gave a presentation, it went really badly, and your judge is on your case, write them out. And then read them. And the reason I like the writing practice is when we read, we bring a different level or quality of assessment than what we do in here. When, when our thoughts are jumbling around in here, especially at three in the morning, we're not very clear. Right? But when you write that out and the judgment says you're a really stupid person, you bring a little more discernment. It's like, well, I'm actually not really a stupid person. You know, I'm CEO of my company and I have a PhD and I, might, I may do stupid things and I may think stupid things, but I'm not a stupid person. Right? It's a little more, that assessment is really important because the judgment is often very blanket statements. You're hopeless, you're pathetic, it's a waste of time, you know, you're stupid. Like, well, actually, that's not true. I may do stupid things. <laughs> Who doesn't do stupid things? <laughs> Etc. All right. Um, so, uh, s- still in the sort of mindfulness camp, replacing practice. So, replacing practice. So, loving kindness, may you be happy, may I be well, may you be peaceful is actually a replacing practice. The Buddha taught it as a replacing a negative with a, with a positive or a skillful, replacing an unskillful, unwholesome, painful thought with a skillful, wholesome thought. So thinking I'm stupid, I'm stupid, I'm stupid. Oh, may I be happy. But you were late for work again and may I be peaceful. Actually, I'm onto a different practice. I'm onto the loving kindness practice. So Back off for a second. So replacing practice is replacing the judging thought with a neutral statement like the sky is blue, grass is green, it's winter, just I'm a stupid person and the sky is blue. Yeah, but you're really pathetic and the grass is green. And, but you're never going to get yourself together and the sky is blue. So you just see, it's just words. It's just words that we give some import to. And this can, can be surprisingly effective. The next practice, which is similar, replacing practice, but using loving kindness. I think loving kindness, as I said in the beginning, is probably well, mindfulness and, and kindness are the two most powerful antidotes. Maybe inquiry too. Maybe it's three. But the more that we can be kind, like, oh, poor butterfly, may I 
be kind, right? It's beautiful, right? That just completely undercuts the judgment. Right? The judge has no, like, where does it go with that? It just, it's like, like putting a, a knife into putty. It just, you know, or, or trying to part water. It just, you know, the love dissolves the whole, the whole painful construct, right? So, um, you know, you know, no one's ever going to love you, and may I love myself. But you're never going to get your shit together, and may I be happy. Yeah, but you're really kind of a loser. May I be free from pain. Yeah, but look at in the mirror, you're really just going to pieces. May I find peace. Right? You just replace each judgment with a kind statement that you feel some genuineness with. right? And it might just be the same statement, like, may I be free from suffering? May I be free from the inner critic? May I love myself as I am? May I accept myself? Just find a statement each time you judge yourself. Oh, butterfly, may I love myself? Love that. I'm going to steal that, if I may. <laughs> Sylvia Borstein, when she gets triggered, she says, oh, honey, you're startled. Oh, honey, you're startled. Right? Find some kind thing that you would say to a loved one or a child. Oh, honey, it's okay. You're okay. Right? Some say the same to yourself. Some sweet thing that we generally don't reserve. We reserve for others, not for ourselves. Um, here's a good one. I haven't talked about this surprisingly yet. Um, understanding the history of the voice. Whose voice is this? These voices are implants. Right? So um, usually when I ask, you know, what are your names for the critic? Normally, pretty much every single time, today may be an exception. I'm not judging you for it, but um, uh, I'll hear mom. It's mom's voice. Or it's dad's voice. Surprisingly, I mostly hear mom's voice, not dad's voice. So those, I've never quite understood that. But anyhow... Um, so when you hear the critic nagging away, right? whose voice does it sound like? Is that dad? Is that mom? Is that the pope? Is that the rabbi? Is that your school teacher? Is that some mean sibling? Is that a high school friend that turned against you, that told you you were valueless? Right? L- listen to whose voice it is. Because it often sounds like someone's voice or someone's phrasing. Or... In my case, I don't think I, my parents, you know, were very loving and, and, and not, I don't, my dad had, was critical, but not, I didn't, I didn't feel so critical of me, but he was brutal with himself. So I hear his voice, not at me, I hear the way he talked to himself, and I've internalized that and talked to myself the way he talked to himself. So it's not necessarily. You know, often, you know, sometimes our parents are very critical, but often they're not. But still we soak it up because we're sponges. You know, I was raised Catholic, and as much as I love, you know, Jesus' teachings, there were things in the church about, you know, being told I was a worthless worm and a, and a, and a sinner at birth. And that left an impression that I was a bad person. And I got some of that from the church. Right? There's something about the Judeo-Christian culture that can sadly implant you know, negative feelings about ourselves. I don't think that's the teaching of, of Jesus at all, in, by any means. But the way those teachings come through institutional religions you know, can often leave a negative imprint. Um, yeah.
so, so that's sort of like, I think a lot in the in mindfulness and the kindness domain. Um, here's another one in, in the butterfly, butterfly teaching. I'll get to you in a second. The butterfly teaching was uh, an example of this, slightly different, um, where you speak you, the truth of your experience when the judgment happens. So in the same way that when maybe your loved one or your family member or friend you know, says something that's really mean, and you're, and you're not caught off guard. You just feel like, wow, that was a really yicky, ucky, yicky thing to say. And you might say to them, wow, oh, that really hurt the way you said that. That was really mean. You can say that to the critic. Like, ow, oh, that hurts. Like when you're, when you're slamming yourself for being unlovable or being a failure or being stupid, you know, which is a very painful thing to tell anyone, let alone yourself, you just say, oh, that really hurts. That's really mean. That, that, that hurts my heart. So you're saying something, you're speaking the truth of your experience. So for me, my big shift happened in my work with the critic when I was in my early 20s and I was in meditation. I was living in a retreat center in England. And I, something, I was working in the kitchen and something, there was a big blow up and, and I was feeling really bad about something. I don't remember the details. But I was sitting in meditation and my critic was just chastising myself for what happened and how I behaved. And, and I was just, and, you know, with mindfulness, you can at times step back with that observing awareness and you can just watch your mind do its thing. And I was watching my critic just being mean, like just throwing these arrows at myself. And I was feeling, rather than, being allied with the critic, which we usually are, I was more just feeling it from the place of here in my body and my heart. And I felt how, like every time I, I felt a judgment, it felt like it was bruising my heart. It was like this wound that kept getting pricked. And there was something that shifted my relationship to the critic where I saw how painful it was and how damaging it was, literally to, the, to one's you know, being. And it made me sort of, you know, take a step back a little bit from believing and feeling so aligned with it. So that speaking your truth or just acknowledging, oh, that's, that hurts, that's hard, that's painful, that's mean, is one way of acknowledging, which you might do in a conversation with a friend. Did you have something that's related to this? Yeah? Well, it was related to the, whose voice does it sound like? Oh, yeah. And, um, it just occurred to me also that it could sound like also yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, definitely. Right. Yes, for sure. Yes. Yes. Men, men should be strong and not feel express emotion. Women should, you know, like I was just talking in, to some people back there about being. You know, women being criticized for being too big or being too loud or being too vocal or being too expressive or being too emotional. Yeah, so totally we internalize those. It might not have one person, but we feel it as a societal judgment that we internalize, for sure. Yeah, it's an important point. Thank you. Um, so in, in the flow of that, uh, feeling the pain of it, um, compassion, right? Compassion arises when we f- when we feel the pain of an experience, and we feel that res- the caring response. But first, we have to acknowledge and let in the pain. 
So with the critic, just as that I was just talking about um, speaking your truth, it's letting yourself feel the pain of this whole process, right? Which I, I, th- I imagine it's very present here today. I, I can sense that many of you are in touch with the pain and the rawness of this experience. And it's, it's that pain and the rawness that allows the heart, the compassion to, to arise and respond. And sometimes we can feel the pain underneath the critic's voice. Right? We feel the vulnerability, right? which, which the critic is trying to cover over or protect us from. You know, sometimes I just feel self-compassion for the fact that this, this critic just lives in us and it's just hard. It just, it just sucks to have a critical voice that follows us around. Like it's just part of being human and it's just, you know, sometimes my critic is going just like, oh. it's just like, it's a painful burden, you know, and there's, I don't know much to do about it. It's just like, oh, this is, this is, and feeling the tenderness, like, oh yeah, we all have this experience. There's another side to compassion, which is fierce compassion. And this is the protective quality of the heart, protective quality of love, that says no. It's, it's, it's compassion, fierce compassion is the, is the fierceness that says no to injustice, to oppression, to abuse, to violence, to anything that's hurtful. Right? And the critic can be all of those things. And at times, the, the voice of, that says no to the critic, that says stop, that says enough, that says I'm not listening to this, I'm not believing this anymore, can be quite fierce. Right? And sometimes we need to be fierce with our own mind because it's kind of out of control. You know, I'm sure you've had those experiences where you've done something or said something or didn't do something and you feel terrible and your critic is just very active and very on your case. And at some point you just say, stop, shut up, like enough, like you would do to a person. Like enough, I've, you've told me how bad I am. You've told me that I've messed up. Sh- I get it, like stop. Right? And there's a place for that fierceness. In the same way that you might say to someone, like, stop, I can't hear this anymore. This is no longer helpful. You've said what you needed to say. I'm, you know, withdrawing myself from this conversation. Sometimes you can listen to what's behind the judgment. Like you can, some people use the strategy of asking, well, what are you really trying to say here? You know, what's what's you know? There's a judgment, but what's what's really being said is, oh, I'm really worried that you're going to mess your life up. I'm really worried that you're going to put in jeopardy this relationship or this friendship or something. So uh, another strategy which I talked about earlier is humor, finding a sense of humor. Right? If you can laugh at the critic, it's about the best strategy there is. It's not usually that funny, so laughter laughter is not that necessarily available. It's usually pretty painful. Um, Sometimes you can exaggerate it as a form of humor. So yes, I'm really the worst meditator in the world. You're right, I'm the most terrible cook and the most horrible parent, etc., etc. 
you can't really use that if you believe that, but you can sort of ham that up a little bit. Yeah, I am. I'm really just the suckiest person. Well, thank you for reminding me. I'd forgotten that from yesterday. Right. So the more you can find, like coming from England, you know, um, uh, the culture lives on sarcasm and dryness and wryness. And so I'm very sarcastic with my judge because it's a form of humor that pulls the plug. So, you know, I'm often driving a spirit rock to teach a meditation class and I'm late because I lost my keys because I never put them on the hook where I should put them to not lose them. And my critic, I know, is going to be on my case when I hit traffic on the 101 and I'm about to teach a meditation class and I'm late and I'm a little stressed. And I can hear the critic, you know, grinding around, I should have left earlier. And I just say, oh, please. Really? Is that the best you've got to offer? And so it's like rolling my eyes, really. I'm just like, oh, whatever. Um, or I'll say one of my favorite things to say to myself is, oh, Mr. Mindfulness wins the day again. He's lost his keys again. <laughs> and people who know me will know I'm quite forgetful. I, I, you know, I lose water bottles and hats and all kinds of things. And, um, you know, I don't like losing those things, but, you know, they, they get shared with other people. They walk away. They have a life of their own. And, you know, it's just my dana to other people. I just give them my hats and especially to the airplane, you know, that they get a lot of my generosity and taxis and Uber and... I'll take your car keys. <laughs> I'll take my car keys. And, um, and I go, oh, well, you know. And, and then, you know, so if I use that phrase, oh, Mr. Mindfulness, there he goes again. It just... It just pulls the rug from the critic. I can't. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. Can't quite get its engine going. So if you can find a way. So in, when I was on long retreats in the nineties, and I would, my judge was pretty active, and um, I would dress my. I'd put a gray wig. Um, you know, like I pretended I had a gray wig, like those judges in England, and I'd have a clavel and a bad meditator, brute, condemned, out with this yogi. You know, and just kind of made light of it. It's just like, why not? You know. So another different tact is, um, and I talked about this earlier, agreeing with the judge. Sometimes agreeing is it. Sometimes, you know, intrapsychically, we we often perpetuate patterns by maintaining a conflict, which sort of maintains an energy. So if we're busy always rationalizing, defending, and pushing it back against the judge, it creates an energy because the judge is always pushing back. If we just go, you're right, then it's, like, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Aikido move. It's a Tai Chi move. If you just say, yep, that was really a mess up. Thank you. Yep, and I look terrible today. Yeah, you're right, I look terrible today. And it, it, it has no pushback, so it sort of it fizzles out. If you're constantly pushing back, rationalizing, defending, it maintains a certain energy. So, you know, and a lot of times what it's pointing to is, you know, factual. Like, yeah, you missed the meeting. You know, you forgot your mother's birthday. You, what, late for, whatever. Yep, you're right. Yep, you're right. I lost my keys again. Yep, I didn't put them on the hook. Yes, I noticed that. <laughs> I should do that next time. That's a really good idea. Thanks for the tip. So Jack's 
main phrase, I think, because I've heard him say this a lot, is, thank you for your opinion, now go bother somebody else. <laughs> right? uh, or I'll say, thank you for your point of view. Right? And, and I like that phrasing because the judge, the judgment is an opinion. Right? It is a point of view. It's not the point of view. It's not the truth. It's just an opinion. Like, you look terrible today. Well, it's funny because I bumped into a friend 10 minutes ago and they thought I looked great. That's clearly an opinion of yours that's subjective. It's not objective. Right? You know, we were you know, finished giving a presentation or a lecture or something and we're on our case about missing some words or not being so fluid as we could be. And, um, and the critic's like, oh, that was just a terrible talk. Well, that's an opinion. You know, thank you. Very interesting, but not. And then there's inquiry. And we did some a little bit, you know, is it, true, is it true that I'm a bad person? Is it really true? Where's the, give me the evidence. Well, I might be in kind at times and thoughtless at times, but am I really a bad person? You know? Or am I really just a selfish person? Well, I can be selfish. We can all be selfish. I have certain things I might do that are a little self-centered, but it doesn't make me a selfish person doesn't fix me in that box. So especially when you hear the word always and should and never. You're always, you know, self-absorbed or you're never kind to anybody. Or you're always thought, you know, you should have been more thoughtful. Always should and never. If that word is in the sentence the critic is usually in there too. Because in reality, always and never, you know, rarely exist, right? And the sun always rises until it doesn't. And should is purely a construct. Coulda, woulda, shoulda, right? If the word coulda, woulda, shoulda is in there, it's your critic. Coulda, woulda, shoulda, done something different, better, smarter, if we could have done something better, we would have. Right? We do the best we can given the information and resources that we had at hand. Right? We have to trust that we always do the best we can. Even if when we can look back and go, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. But we do the best we can given our conditioning, our ignorance, our compulsions, our addictions. We do the best we can. Not always great, but it's the best we can. We have to trust that. All right, lastly, a couple of things. Um, uh, and I sort of spoke to this a little bit. This is the, the firmness, which is like the fierce compassion, which is just saying no, just stop. Like, shut up, I'm not interested, go away. It's a little more dismissive doesn't always work but sometimes it's useful especially when you feel very oppressed by it and you need to create a little space like just shut up go away give me some space so I can think about this one of the reasons why we do that it's a means to an end it's not an end in itself one of the main 
so many main principles here, but this, this is a really important one. One of the main reasons the critic is not a, is an is a ineffective strategy, especially around, because it, it comes in the guise of trying to improve us, right? Usually. You know, if you do this, you'll be better, you know, more effective. If, if we do something that hurts someone, say for example, right? And we all do that. We're human. That's just part of being human. We do things that we're thoughtless, careless, whatever, with our speech, with our words, with our actions. If we just simply judge and condemn and beat ourselves up, what happens? There's no learning possible. We feel we've done something bad to somebody. We've hurt someone, say, by what we said. We got triggered and we said something really mean. If all we do is judge ourselves, there's no learning that can come from why that happened and how you can work with that more effectively in the future. Right? If you can get enough space from the critic to look, well, what the hell happened? I love this person, but I said this really mean thing. What was going on? The judgment thwarts the capacity for inquiry. Right? If, you, if you're judging yourself, if you're shaming yourself, you can't reflect wisely about that experience. You're just shaming yourself. If you can get back the shaming off and look at, God, how did that happen? How did I get so triggered? Why did I say that? there's much more likelihood that you will not repeat that because you're learning something from it. Does that make sense? So one of the reasons why the critic is, it seems like, well, if I beat myself up enough, I'll get to the meeting on time next time. No, I won't ever look at why is it that I don't really plan well enough. That's worth looking at, not beating myself up for being late. Right? That's going to lead to more fruit than the other. Last strategy and it's really sort of the, it's probably a really nice Latin word for this, this like the summary or the, the, uh, the fruit of all this practice is we become disinterested in it. The critic, like a little yapping dog, maybe you have a neighbor, I used to have a neighbor that, neighbor's dog that howled. It was a wolf every time there was a sign that howled. There was no way that wolf dog was not going to howl. I had to get, I had to find a way to not be bothered by it. In the same way, the critic, the critic is unlikely to disappear. Some people I've worked with, it does really almost dissolve. But for most of us mortals, it's going to keep whimpering away. And so the job is how do we become disinterested in it? So we can go about our life and it does it, and it doesn't impact us doesn't make us collapse or feel shitty or whatever it does. Right? So ultimately we learn to, not, to just not be bothered by it, to be disinterested in what it has to say because it's, it's not where wisdom comes from. Okay, so that's a lot of strategies. So what we're going to do now, if I can get some volunteers to pass these out... Actually, um, let me just, because I've passed them out, you'll start reading. So, sorry, sorry, one second. Let me just say a few things. Sorry. Um, So, we're going to do an exercise, and we're going to, again, use that list, uh, that favorite list that we had, (laughs) and we're going to practice as if we were real-time with our judge, 
defending ourselves against it. And what I mean by defending, defending is the opposite of engaging. So rather than rationalizing or doing all the not-so-functional ways to thwart the impact of it, we're learning to engage, uh, to work with those critical thoughts so it doesn't, it doesn't land, it doesn't negatively impact us. So, um, so we become a bit more like Teflon rather than Velcro. So, um, so we're going to do this in pairs and, I, and I'd like to role play with someone. So I, I need a volunteer to be my critic. Someone like to be my critic? <laughs> All right, Tiffany, good job. Thank you. Do you want to bring your mic up? I'm scared now. All right, so how this goes is um, we're going to help each other by temporarily role-playing each other's critic. So, in this case, Tiffany's going to be my critic, and in a minute I'm going to give her one of my judgments, and she's going to say it to me, and I'm going to look at all these, and I've got this handout, which is probably why you can look at that, and, and, and just... Think about well how how would I how would I relate to this judgment in a way that doesn't so it doesn't negatively impact doesn't sting doesn't land doesn't take root doesn't make me collapse right so and I want you to try a bunch of them humor fierce compassion ignoring it loving kindness counting it naming it whatever whatever comes to you it needs to be short. Um, it needs to be uh, in the moment and, and, and your partner is going to keep repeating the judgment like your judge keeps repeating the judgments, right? So it's not just a, oh, you come up with a strategy and then, you know, it's not a usually a one-time deal. You, it usually takes some, some work, right? Um, so, well, let's play with that and I'll say a few more things. So I'll give you a judgment. Um, I always have my, my go-to, but I'm going to see if I can think of a different one. Um, I'll use this one. It's, it's somewhat benign, but, you know, hey, I'm doing this publicly, so. Um, uh, uh, you never prepare enough for your teaching. You never prepare enough. So, you, so you're going to say, and try and repeat it relatively verbatim. You can ad-lib a little later, but in the beginning... You never prepare enough for your teaching. That's yeah, it. yeah. Say it again. You never prepare enough for your teaching. Yeah, it's true. I don't. <laughs> yeah, you never prepare enough for your teaching. I know, teaching. it's terrible. God, I really would be a better teacher if I did that. Thank you. You, you never prepare enough. Oh, really? Stop. I've heard enough. You've already said this. I got it the first time. You never prepare enough for your teaching. Really? Yeah, you, you never do. You never prepare. Like, this is really so unhelpful. You never prepare oh, stop, enough for stop. Your teaching. You never prepare enough for your teaching. And may I be happy. You never prepare enough for your teaching. You, why would I listen to you? Because you never prepare enough for your teaching. <laughs> See how it goes? This is how it goes. 
This is why you can't win a round of applause for Tiffany. <laughs> Good job. Um, this is why you don't win with your critic, right? Because it comes back and it sounds... Each time she said it, it's like, all oh, right, uh, well, I don't care. Ooh, but... Yeah, well, shut up. Ooh, but... Right? So, so this, is, this is good practice, right? Kind of playful, and you'll have different strategies. And you can say the same thing like, oh, please. Oh, please, will you shut up? And the sky's blue today. Right? And just, just play with which ones work for you. Keep it very short. Don't get into a long... Yeah, well, I did really... Pre- I prepared yesterday, and look at my notes. I've got all these notes, and, you know, it's really... I'm trying to do my best. No, like, end of story. You've lost. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to pass these sheets out now, volunteers, if you'd like to come, or anybody who's sitting up close. Just pass them around. And... Um, anybody else want to grab some of these. So get yourself into pairs and I'll just walk you through the exercise one more time. So pair up. Anybody need a partner? Raise your hand, raise your hand, look around, behind you, in front of you, behind you usually. Raise your hand, behind you. Anybody else need a partner? Raise, okay, raise your hand, anybody? This still here? Here, lady in pink, lady in gray. Raise your hand, yeah. Anybody else need a partner? No, I'm not a volunteer, actually. I think you were partnered. No. Oh, you got it. Okay. Everybody have a sheet of paper? Everybody have a partner? Okay, so um, how the exercise works... Um, uh, the person closest to that side of the room is going to go first. Uh, that side of the room over there. And um, so you'll be partner A. So partner A will select one of your judgments. Um, and again, you could choose an easy one just to kind of get into the flow. Or you could choose one that's really hard for you because that's where you really need support. And you really need support learning how to deal with it real time. So, and then partner B is going to say that judgment as, as accurately as you can with a little bit of life force, as your critic might be. And partner B will say, so your partner B will say, well, you're really stupid. And you'll say, oh, you're right, I'm really stupid. <laughs> yeah, but you're really stupid, right? Just as we demonstrated, we go back and forth. And the, you, you're done when you feel like you found a response that's like, oh, that actually felt like, oh yeah, that really, I felt really strong in that. I'd like, it didn't land as hard. It didn't, it didn't kind of like, right? So you're kind of playing, you're kind of sensing into which strategy kind of works, right? Um, 
So you do it, you know, five or ten times back and forth. But it may be you get it, you know, you nail it after the second one. It's like, oh, I'm done with that one. I'm like, okay, good. Then you switch roles. So then partner, uh, then partner A uh, will, um, well, you reverse roles, however that works. <laughs> you get it. So it's the other person's turn to come up with a phrase and go back and forth. And, right? So you're taking turns defending. Any qu- and then we'll just go back and forth going down your list and then we'll do this for you know a good 25 minutes um, so any questions any questions is this clear yeah okay partner A off you go
lot worse. Do you teach me how to feel bad about it?
So taking about another minute to finish off, winding up your particular inquiry. Now go for it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, so coming back into uh, your seats and if we can get some mic runners. So um, you've all now graduated from the fending off your critic class. Uh, Not exactly. Um, I mean, this is just a taste really, right, of... um, ways that you can think about bringing a more dynamic response to the critic, right? Rather than just listening or being beaten down, right? There, you can engage and interact more actively, which can, which can be really quite helpful. Whether it's kindness or fierceness or naming or ignoring or loving or... Um, so, but it takes some work, right? Like when you're driving... You can practice this when you're driving. Oh, please. No one's going to think you're crazy because everyone talks themselves in the car now. (laughs) Stop. Or whatever, you know. So, but I'm curious. Questions, comments? I I got some interesting questions as I was walking around. Please, here in the Paisley shirt. I don't know over there. My voice is pretty loud as it is. But use the mic, just in case. Okay. uh, Use the mic, just in case. Okay. I've been, I just finished reading The Soul Without Shame, and I've been using some of his exercises on the, you know, but I don't drive a car, I ride a motorcycle. So people on the street usually think I'm batshit crazy <laughs> because I'm yelling at the critic. But today in the ex- exercise, I uh, did something different and showed compassion for the critic and myself, and it's actually made a big shift. Mm. So. Mm. What was the shift? Can you basically a little self-love, a mm-hmm. little kindness. Mm-hmm. That'll do it. That'll do it. Good. Yeah. Yes, please. 
Yeah, I'm wondering if you can talk, uh, this morning you talked about uh, having the inner critic in your living room. So I actually kept asking my inner critic to get out of my living room. And I taught, what, what resonated for me, the way I understood it, was that you said also the inner critic isn't just negative, there's also positive comments. So like one of mine I wrote down where uh, my inner critic tells me that I'm the greatest person in the world. Um, and that's like, I, and I realized it just clicked this morning, you know, which is right. It does that so it can stay in my living room. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if you could address that. Mm-hmm. So what do you do when it tells you you're the greatest person in the world? Um, well, before today, I just went, oh, that's so nice of you. <laughs> Please come in. May I get you tea? Right. Right. <laughs> and, and then does it slap you when you do something wrong? Of course. Uh, much harder, much harder. I mean, right. yeah, right. That's, that's what I heard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you know, you could do the same thing and say, thank you for your opinion. Thank you for your point of view. Right? You're acknowledging the statement. It doesn't hurt to have a nice appreciative statement, but you're clear, oh, that's coming from the same place that will also slap me. And I guess the question is, the places, the slaps, the, the negatives, is there always a positive, like, in your work with inner critic, is there all, do all of us have that carrot kind of thing to, for our inner critics to get into our living rooms, or is that my own rare form? Um, it's not your own weird form. It definitely, it can take both sides as some of the quotes I pointed to, you know, but um, most people tend to veer on the negative. Yeah. Thank you. But some can be, you know, like a coach. A coach is both constructive and and critical, right? So definitely can take that voice for sure. Um, Or flattery. What else? What was that like to do? Yes. <clears throat> Hi there. I, I have more of a question. Uh-huh. Um, Please, yeah. So something that I'm trying to, I've been working on is really the somatic experience of mm. like really, how, what does it feel like in my body? Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I'd love to get, um, is, is there one comes faster than the other? Is it the physical, like the cue, or is it the thoughts that come first? I think it's probably a bit different for everyone, but... Uh, because awareness is so important, and so if I can pick up that on that trigger first, then I can draw myself to the awareness. So. Right. Well, the Buddha would say it comes from the mind first. Right? All things arise with the mind, with the mind that would create the world. So, um, but we often don't detect the mental flicker, you know, the thought, the judgment, the memory, the. But, um, you know, yeah, it can come in different ways. It can be energetic. Um, But it's usually some kind of mental something. It could be an image or felt sense. Um, You know, like we could just, you know, maybe we, you know, had a horrible conversation that we're feeling terrible about. And we don't need to have the judgment. We could just have some faint, felt sense sort of sense of that conversation and it immediately triggers it it didn't didn't even come through the mind it's just like but it sort of did sort of like a recollection right yeah yes at the back over here great oh someone okay I have 
And then over kind here in the gray also. Kind of related to the positive coaching aspect of it. I, I struggle with that a little bit because I don't want to be feeding the critic, but kind of positive self-talk or positive encouragement, like, hey, you're doing great, you got this. Is that's that different. different? Okay. That's different. Yeah, you know, we can, you know, and I think it's important to actually be positive, you know, looking at the positive, appreciating what we do well, appreciating ourselves, and, you know, it's just, it's, that's a wholesome quality, especially if we've been listening to the critic forever, to suddenly actually go, well, you know, yes, whatever you've got to say, yeah, very interesting. But actually, you know, yeah, there was a really, really fruitful work today, and that was a great conversation, and I really handled that argument really skillfully. And that's really important, to, to acknowledge and validate and appreciate the positive and the constructive, for sure. Yeah. Yes, please. So I have the pattern of anxiety and the critics like, I don't know, I've never figured out the right name, Darth Vader or whatever. He is mean as hell. And my whole life has just beat the shit out of me. And what's happening for me now is I'm feeling like I have more of the awareness. So the, the mental part, the thought part, what's happening is it triggers this physiological response in my body that's somatic. It says, oh, we're doing this again. Here goes your heart rate. You're not going to sleep tonight. You're going to spiral, spiral, spiral. You're going to look at the clock when you wake up at three and say, oh, there's only three more hours. Um, It just triggers, this whole body response takes over. From the critic? It initiates from that. That's Mm -hmm. the trigger. Mm -hmm. Some, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to flub the interview I have on Tuesday kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it succeeds because I flubbed the interviews, except they're giving me yet another chance. Um, So I'm having trouble putting the circuit breaker on in my body. And I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. if you have um, any somatic type suggestions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think techniques that I have, the only thing I haven't tried is EMDR or mm-hmm. um, I've had a tiny lesson on tapping mm-hmm. and I think that that's going to help a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that can be helpful. But other things that you've, you've had seen work. Uh, are, you, are you speaking specifically about middle of the night or just general anxiety that gets lodged in the body, triggered by a judgment or... Sounds hard. Um, I mean, the middle of the night thing is, a bit, is its own beast. You know, our psyche in the middle of the night is a very uh, embattled psyche, and we don't—we're not well resourced. And so, the critic and anxiety, particularly, tends to run a bit wild. And uh, I find for myself, I need to get up not lie there with it and not be in that semi-activated, semi, yeah, not running that nervous energy because it doesn't, it's, I find it hard to interrupt in that prone state. Get up, sit, you know, have some tea, 
you know, just interrupt that kind of fight-flight freeze state. Um, and it, I find it hard to do it lying down. You know, just get up and you know, move to a different place. And um, Because I, the mind just feels very under-resourced to deal with the mental layer and therefore can't inter- interrupt the physical layer. Um, and then the other... Th- practice I think is helpful is loving kindness to do some kind of heart practice that's that's embodied right? you put your hand on your heart and your belly or somewhere and you're trying to soothe your nervous system right? and it may take an hour or two to do that to soothe it um, but the, the loving kindness is helpful because it it's both mental and also physiological right? it's, it's it, you know you know, and then you know, experimenting with all those modalities, whether it's EMDR or SE or tapping, you know, all of those can be helpful. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't have a magic trick, I'm afraid. You know, we you know we try something for a while, it works, and then yeah, but sounds like some you know. Yeah, doing some deeper work on the nervous system, like what allows you to soothe the nervous system, which is not here, right? I mean, the the, the judgment triggers, activates, right? The fight, flight, parasympathetic. So what allows that to feel safe? Right? Hot bath, you know. I mean, I'll literally do this sometimes. It's okay, gonna survive. We've been here before. We'll get through this. I love you. May I be happy? You know, all that stuff, right? Helpful. But not a magic pill, you know. Um, yeah. Maybe doing, you know, maybe doing some loving kindness practice before you go to sleep. So you're implanting that a little bit. No. Yeah. May my body be calm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yes, please. Um, <clears throat> hello. On that note, um, something that really spoke to me by this woman, um, Casey Baker. She's she works with women in public speaking, um, and she's talking about anxiousness and nerves, specifically with public speaking. But I think it applies to anything. Um, that physiologically, when you're anxious and stressed and nervous, what your body is going through is the same as when you're excited. And sort of mentally shifting that, like reframing it in that way, so that, and the way she says it is that you're being, if you imagine yourself like being plugged into a socket and that is sort of fueling you, what you're experiencing in your body is like fueling you to meet whatever you need to do with you know, the appropriate energy to complete the task or whatever um, is sort of an interesting way to work with that anxiety rather than trying to like force it away necessarily. Mm-hmm. And it's been helpful to me to then kind of get amped up with the excitement and then I approach the thing very differently um, rather than feeling like fearful of this stress. Um, yeah, and Mel Robbins also in her book, The Five Second Rule, talks about that, how physiologically stress manifests the same way as excitement. Uh, yeah, just think that's, I, I hear you. Yeah, no, definitely there's similar energy. You know, it's, it's the, the nervous system activating itself to defend, 
or, or engage and um, and sometimes that can help because fear and particularly fear and excitement are very close and sometimes when we're excited about something there's fear and when there's fear there's also can be excitement a little harder in the middle of the night a little easier in the daytime to engage that positive energy yeah Yes, who has a mic? Somebody over there. Hello. Hello. Uh, so I have been exploring more about the condition of shame. Uh-huh. And I have two questions related to that. One is, it's my understanding that the condition of shame would live sort of underneath the inner critic. And is that true based on uh, your studies? And then two... So, 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 that just, so mm-hmm. is the question, is the shame run under the critic? How did yes. you phrase it? Yes. Uh, if the kind of condition of shame sort of runs or lives underneath the critic, uh-huh. is that true? Yeah. Or just any thoughts on that? And then... Well, let, let's, let me mm-hmm. take that first. So I would say... Um, I would say more the other way around, for the most part. You know, I mean, over the years, it all gets conflated and embroiled, but the critic is uses shame to, you know, like I was talking about in early childhood, we shame ourselves to thwart our wilder impulses, right? So... Um, uh, so we that, that that mechanism is still in place where you know we're judging ourselves, which induces shame, which the critic thinks in its outdated mode of operating is going to be is going to help us. Right? We're late for an important function. We shame, judge ourselves, shame ourselves, in the hope that that will help. Because it doesn't help; it just makes us feel shame. So then the shame becomes sort of pervasive and, um, and sort of the, the shame and the critics, I think, snowball a little bit. But it's more the critic evokes the shame. Okay. Hence that book title, Soul Without Shame, freeing ourselves from the shaming mechanism. Right. Great, thank you very much. Was that... What about your second question? It actually answers it, which was, does um, working with the inner critic kind of heal or detether that feeling yeah. and emotion of shame? So yeah. thank you. Yeah. Particularly if we're also cultivating loving kindness and compassion and self-compassion. Because it's a bit like the critic drains the reservoir of self-goodness, right? innate goodness. It gives us the message that we're bad, that we're wrong, that we're deficient, that we're not enough, blah, blah. The loving kindness, the compassion, the self-compassion, the forgiveness, it's all nurturing that reservoir to feel like I'm okay. I'm okay to exist. I'm okay to live. I'm a, I'm a good person. I have a good heart. Like, so we're building up that reservoir of okayness or goodness. Right? So that's why I think both strategy is important. We work with the critic and the judge and the thoughts and the views and the ideas and the and we're also nurturing and building the kindness, the love, the acceptance. Right? Both both are necessary. Because we've been so depleted by all that all that judging. Yes, please. 
Yeah, so uh, one of the things that I was uh, going to just note is that, uh, you know, when I was doing the exercise with my wife, that it was difficult to bear, bear in mind all the different strategies, you know. Mm-hmm. And what I remembered is, um, you know, as a therapist, oftentimes I'll, I'll try to come up with, you know, an anthropomorphization of, of the critic, uh, for, for, you know, or a creative way of describing, like, for example... Um, going with the resistance, you know, one example of that is I tell clients, well, imagine that, you know, this critic's judgment is sort of like an uninvited guest, mm-hmm. you know, who comes over for tea and they've invited themselves over for tea. So, you know, you're not going to be rude and say, no, take off. You're going to invite them in, hear what they have to say, but then, you know, after a while, you tell them you've got somewhere to go, you know, so it's sort of to that effect. But, you know, so it's just a notion of um, being creative uh, with and playful, you know, and, and that kind of also takes the wind out of the inner critic also, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think it's helpful for all of us to find, like, you know, I just sort of downloaded 20 different strategies and you got a list of some of them. And um, it may have been a little sort of confusing or overwhelming to like, oh, I'm being told I'm stupid. Let me think, uh, what, are, what am I supposed to say? Uh, go away. No, uh, right? You know, any new practice is going to feel clunky. It's going to feel not our own. It's going to feel, you know, it's clunky. Um, but maybe there's two or three, you know, you really needed two or three strategies. You know, mine mostly is, oh, please. You know, or Mr. Mindfulness, here he is again, or, you know, humor, sarcasm, and go away, or something, you know, we don't need that many. So, you know, of that list or of this workshop, and I'm glad you brought this up, you know, just choose two or three, because you won't remember most of them anyway. So just choose two or three, play with them, see if that works. You're in the car, you're walking, and your critics on your case about something, just try it. Like, just. Give yourself a lot of love and kindness, or humor, or count them, or whatever it is. And, you know, or take two a week and just like, okay, I'm going to use this, these two a week, whether they work or not, I'm just going to see what it's like. And then, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll come to rest with your handful of tools. Um, so, uh, you know, take it as a working document. You know, hopefully, you know, if we, if we kind of crowdsourced this, right? There's probably, there's 100 people here. You know, there's probably 100 or 200 strategies, right? Some of which are on the sheet and probably some of them aren't on the sheet, you know? So um, make it your own. Make it simple. Do it, <laughs> basically. Make it simple. I forget what I said now, but do it. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's practice, right? We can read all the books we want. We have to practice it. We have to actually put it into action. Kindness, awareness, etc. All right, so I want us to do a little uh, loving kindness before we close, just to, since we've done a lot of, you know, hot, tenderizing work. Um, and uh, I want to appreciate you for having stayed the whole day. <laughs> this is not an easy workshop, you know. Um, so, um, not easy to look at this stuff, as I said, not easy to share. I appreciate that you've all, you know, showed up and helped each other. 
So just one one psychic thing we need to do. So all those people who were your critic, let's just visualize for two seconds, they are not your critic. So just release them from that, right? You may be working with your best friend or your partner. They are not, they were helping you work with your critic. They are not your critic. They could be critical, but they are not your critic. So just let's just all tease that apart. Okay. So, um, all right, well, let's sit together. Let's find a posture where you can sit comfortably at ease. Feeling your breath in your chest, or feeling your heart. You might want to put your hand on your heart again. Take a moment to see if you can sense your goodness. However you understand that word. Like when you came into this world as a newborn baby, you came in with goodness, innocent. That's still your nature. Goodness, kind, wanting to do your best. Can you appreciate yourself? Can you appreciate the work that you did today, the fact that you're here trying to grow, heal, learn? And then just offering ourselves words of loving kindness. I'll say a few. You can offer yourself your own. May I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. The inner harm is the harm that we cause ourselves with our mind, with judging. May I be free from inner and outer harm. Or may I be safe. May I love myself just as I am. May I accept myself just as I am. May my body be healthy and strong. Be kind and loving with myself. And whatever other words that you want to express, words of love, words of appreciation, or what intention that you have leaving this workshop today, may I be free from the harm of self-judgment. And 
extending this appreciation, this warmth, kindness to all the people you work with today, sharing their judgments and struggles. May they too see their goodness. May they too love themselves as they are. May you too accept yourself as you are. Sending this warmth, this friendliness, this wish to everybody here in the room. May everybody here be filled with loving kindness. May everyone here love and accept themselves just as they are. here be free from self-judgment. And extending that outwards in whatever way you like to all beings, all creatures, all peoples, those you know, those you don't know. with a poem if you could grow to your best self be patient not demanding accepting not condemning nurturing not withholding self-marveling not belittling gently guiding not pushing and punishing you are more sensitive than you know Mankind is tough as war, yet delicate as flowers. We can endure agonies, but open fully only to warmth and light. And our need to grow is fragile as a fragrance, dispersed by storms of will, returning when the storms are still. So accept, respect, attend your sensitivity. A flower cannot be opened with a hammer. So, um, good work, people. Yeah, hope you leaving here with some, hopefully some uh, energy, some tools, some techniques, some strategies, some inspiration or enthusiasm to work with this critic and to know that you can find ways to find some ease inside with it. You know, this is, and but as we know, this is deep work. So you know, it's, some of this takes. It's a lifetime of work of self-kindness and self-love and forgiveness. And 
So um, don't judge yourself by thinking, well, I'm judging it's Sunday, I'm what the hour of workshop. No, it takes time. Right? So be patient. Do check out the book. There's actually a course, I did a course, a video online course on the inner critic you can check out. I think it's still available online somewhere here at Spirit Rock. Um, and um, do, the, do the practices, right? Take these practices home with a friend, a loved one, someone you came with today. Practice defending, practice doing these things. It really works. I did it for a long time and I really felt like it made a difference. Um, so I hope you sign up on my news email list so I can keep you informed. Sometimes I give talks about this and I share those talks to my list. Um, I also do a lot of teaching here. I'm here on Monday nights. I'm here, I think, the first the first Monday of December. I've got a day long in the New Year. I think it's on Insight Meditation. So if you're feeling inspired by New Year's resolution, um, come to that. I'm teaching at Esalen a lot. I have a five-day retreat on loving kindness and awareness. Um, I think it's like the 16th to the 21st of December. And I'm also doing a, a weekend there in January. It's a really great weekend. We take over the whole campus for different Buddhist teachers from different lineages. And we do an you know, kind of orientation to the different traditions in Buddhism. It's like the second weekend in January. Anyhow, you can find that on. So my main website is markcolman.org. You can find out all that stuff on there. Anyhow, mostly just want to appreciate you for being here and thank you for your attention, your practice, and uh, may you be well and free from your critic. And see you again. All right, take care. Oh, CEs, please fill in your CEs. Sign up. Sign out. The last poem is 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 anonymous, ish. I have no idea. A flower cannot be opened with a hammer. Just Google it. All right, take care. And I'm happy to sign books if you would like your books signed. <laughs>